Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. And safety insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety insurance. We'll help you manage life's storms. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, what would you think of a one-term presidency? We'll ask you. Then we'll be joined by the head of the Pine Street Inn, Lindia Downey, followed by senior advisor to the Trump campaign, Corey Lewandowski. He'll make a pitch for his candidate. Every year, Salem gets a big economic boost from the droves of visitors drawn to the fights of the witch city. But this year, Mayor Kim Driscoll has made clear she doesn't want you. Locals only as coronavirus cases spread. Mayor Driscoll joins us in the final plea to stay out of Salem and bring us up to date on what else is going on there. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH, three days to go, Jim Browdy, till the election. Uh, I was aware of that, but thank you very much for updating me. And I will update you. It's <laughs> snowing in Boston. Are you aware of that? It is. I'm watching my flowers die yeah, on the back it's porch. It's horrible. It's horrible. Not to mention daylight saving time ends tomorrow. I can't deal with any of this. So could a one-term presidency transform American politics? Yesterday, we were talking to Bill McKibben, who wrote this piece in The New Yorker about Biden. And one of the most encouraging things about him becoming president, according to Bill, is it would likely be one term. And without having to worry about it uh, the second term, would Biden not be free to be a bolder, more risk-taking president? But putting Biden aside, could this make every presidency less compromised? Would it also help to to mitigate the deep divisions within the United States, maybe mellow partisan politics? With a one-term president, the stakes just aren't as high, I'd argue, for anyone. For a president, it means not being preoccupied with fundraising, approval ratings, holding our breath for four years for us during an administration we're not crazy about, but eight years feels impossible. So if our democracy does need guardrails, would a one-term presidency be a start or would it not? Our number is 877-301-8970. I mean, Biden has intimated that he'd do a one-term thing, particularly the way he's spoken about uh, Kamala Harris. By the way, that soundbite just a minute ago, I think it was uh, Don Jr. Uh, It is despicable that all these Republicans call her Kamala Harris, you know, whatever it is to to for the racists out there, whatever it is, it is despicable and totally unnecessary. But I don't want to get started on that. It just drives me nuts. What do you think about a one-term presidency? I'm assuming you'd like that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm I, not passionate about it either way. I do think the great thing uh, would be that you wouldn't have to worry about a f- fundraising nonstop and you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, if you do something that's bold and brash. I mean, McKibben was talking about things uh, like just having this huge stimulus because people are really in a mess with the pandemic or that he could actually embrace the Green New Deal, which I think is, is going to be disruptive to the economy, no question about it. But I think we are in big trouble. We've got 10 years before we're at the point of no return, um, so many scientists say. 
on the other hand, I don't know if the the president would have the he'd be kind of a lame duck so soon into his presidency. I'm not sure if he'd have. Well, the he power. or she is a lame duck in their second term anyway. If they get a second term, well, so they are, have- but. Yeah, I, I would go for six. If I was going to do it, I would do, do six years. Yeah. Six years. I could be convinced either way, Jim. Maybe you can convince me. Well, actually, no, I can't convince you because you're not going to like my position. Not only am I not in favor of a one-term president, I am in favor of a constitutional amendment to eliminate a two-term limit on oh presidents. My, my, my oh, attitude, my God. My attitude is oh, if somebody in the FDR mode is doing what the people want him or her to do, then keep them around. And if they're not, then... Uh, then dump them. I don't. I don't like have the you, idea that the only you? way you can be free to do what you think is right is because you know you don't have to run for re-election. I think it's a dangerous thing. Have you learned nothing from this last four years? How quickly the government of laws is reduced to a government of no laws? Vote them out. The then. Laws Vote them out. The laws. Vote them out. Well, we'll see. Maybe. I think there are so many people that are convinced. Um, because we're all in our different silos, as people point out, although some of us are trying to go to different silos every day to get the opposite side and listen to what they're saying. Anyway, um, that people believe him. And I, 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 I well, think the that the majority of people believe him and vote for him. That's the way democracy works. You may not like the outcome, but if people decide they want Trump 2.0, then they should Jim, get Trump 2.0. Look around the world where you have autocrats who won't get out of power, and the more they're in, the more they squash any kind of attempt at reform or revolt. I mean, are you kidding me? It's no. bad Eight seven, Let me give the phone number. 877. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. 877 We're packed today, by the way. Don't have a huge amount of time for this. So if you have a thought about this, we'd love to hear from you soon. 877 Ask Just let me you ask what? you one question. Ask me do, you, do you think in their heart of hearts a lot of Russians are happy with Vladimir Putin? Well, you know, there's something between happy with having Erdogan. a dictator. Uh, uh, Erdogan and Putin and Kim Jong-un are not the role model I'm talking about. I'm talking about, well, I mean, there's, you may have heard of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who actually did more than two terms. I think he was a pretty decent president. I don't know about you. And yeah. my attitude is, then we have to do a better job if you think that, that in, in the, you're not a Trump fan. So the answer is part of your job is to educate the public as to why he doesn't deserve another four years. And if you can't convince him, then you can't convince him. That's the way this works. And I know what you're okay. going to say, which is a whole separate issue. Yeah, but if there's voter suppression, then the rules don't apply. Well, voter suppression is a problem whether you have a one-term, two-term, or four-term president. It's got to be stopped regardless. So I'm not sure that's that's tied. It's tied to the the number of years a man or woman could serve as our uh, leader. But, you know, having said that, uh, I don't have, I mean, I, the, your argument and the argument from McKibben about Biden, I think is a powerful argument. I'm just not, other than for Supreme Court justices who are not elected, I am a big, well, you, you uh, I'm not a term judges limit too. person. That's another great idea. Well, that's idea. not for today. 877 <laughs> I've been in the sh- today we've been only have three minutes and already you're like, brutalizing me jesse in rhode island you're uh first i guess on boston public radio how are you oh i'm all right how are you um i completely agree with marjorie jim that uh statement that you think that terms should go past two uh is just absolutely absurd especially with the current state of our country i mean could you even imagine another term of Trump if he gets to serve out four more years. I mean, I don't think that anybody could survive. But Jesse, Jesse, that doesn't, you know, if it turns out the public 
does what you and Marjorie deeply don't want him to do, which is to reelect Donald Trump, then the problem isn't that we have a one term or two term limit. The problem is something's wrong with democracy and the voters in a democracy in general. Isn't a one term thing a an artificial fix, Jesse? I mean, that would be his decision to only serve for one term. Right. I don't know about an artificial fix. I don't no, I meant if we, if, we, if, we requ- if we mandated that you can only serve, as Marjorie said, one six-year term, how does that fix anything? It just superimposes a one-term limit. And I would argue, since you two are railing against Trump, if Trump had known from day one that he didn't have to run for re-election, you should make the argument that he would have been ten times worse than he was in the first four years, according to you two, because he knew he didn't have to raise money and didn't have to go before the voters again. Having said that, we appreciate your opinion, yeah. and you made Marjorie smile. Jesse, thanks well, for the call. Because I didn't know you were going to whip that crazy thing out of your pocket. What did We should have no terms for president. <laughs> you took me by surprise with that one, Jim. I whipped that I mean, right out of my pocket I know there, Marjorie. Your idea <laughs> is that we should have people in Congress for 65 years. Yeah. So you have these Ted judiciary Kennedy was hearings. Really bad senator, and listen, I'll tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm not 20 years old myself. I'm getting You're up not? there myself. But I mean, yeah. I really think that there's something a little amiss when we look at Dianne Feinstein I agree. and Chuck Grass. You Grass. know They're I agree 87. that. Vote them you know, out. Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have gone a long time ago, but she didn't go because because she wanted to hold on. She to wasn't elected. Got, that's a big difference. That's right. That's big right. Big difference. But the, but the reason we need term limits in Congress is because people don't vote their conscience until they're willing to lose the election. Look at Jeff Flake. Uh, Mitt Romney's not going to have to be running again for a long time out Five in Utah. Five years, right. Look at uh, the guy down from Tennessee, Six, uh, Corker. I mean, these people that wanted to speak their conscience in the Republican Party had to uh, not run again. Brunier and Hyde hey, Park. Brunier. Hi, How are Brunier. you? Hi. Um, I've been wanting to call for the longest time. My telephone had a problem yesterday. I finally um, uh, updated the software and then if and then it works. Every time I call, the phone hangs up on me. I'm like, wait a minute, did Marjorie block me? I did, Brunier. I'm sorry. I had enough. She's tried to block me, Brunier, but I don't know about you. <laughs> What's well, up? You're here today. Been, What's up? I've been itching to call. There's so many things that I wanted to say. First of all, um, I'm going to get to that point quickly, but I'll quickly say the word um, uh, um, packing the court. I think that people who are for expanding the court should not use the word packing the court because it's bad rhetoric, just like uh, yeah. defund the police. You know, we, the Republicans didn't know how to speak. We just don't know how to speak. We who, who support things. It's like we're fighting against ourselves. I agree with packing you, by the way. The court sounds negative. So it's I agree expanding the court or reform the court or something. Anyway, so I know that's not the subject. It's okay. uh, Jim, I agree with you 1,000%. Marjorie, I think today you're totally wrong. I mean, if Trump That's knew okay. that he was not going to face the electors, this guy would have instituted, I don't know, uh, death penalty for people who just criticize him on Facebook. I don't, something. <laughs> death penalty. <laughs> people who criticize hey, Bernier, him. How I haven't an- thought of that, Bernier. That's an excellent point. <laughs> how anxious are you about uh, Tuesday? Or, well, I mean, everybody's voting, obviously. Did you hear, both of you here on the national news, more people have voted in Harris County in Texas yeah. Already, then voted in total, not mail in, in total in 2016. This is um, that's the one drop box county, right? Drop box, but go ahead, Bernier. How anxious are you about Tuesday? 
or Wednesday or Thursday, well, whatever yes, it is. Uh, to answer your question, yes, I've heard all of those things because I do listen to the show every day, and people who listen to the show, um, or, or they know about things, they know what's going on. You guys make a good point of educating us. Thanks. Okay. You and bars too. Um, anxious. I am extremely anxious because I don't know where the votes are coming from, and. I am optimistic deep down inside. I'm hoping they're Democrats mostly or people who don't want Trump, Republicans who don't want Trump. But at the same time, I don't want the same heartburn that I had uh, four years ago with Hillary. So I'm nervous. I'm really, really nervous. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm nervous. Well, uh, put nervousness on steroids and you're talking to Marjorie Egan. Bernier, it's a pleasure, <laughs> as always, to hear from you. Call us again soon. 877-301-8970. You know, uh, my favorite podcast is The Daily from the New York Times. They had a great one today, Down at the Villages. Um, it's a massive retirement community in Florida. they got like 50, uh, 50 golf courses there and polo fields and all this kind of stuff. And they've been historically very Republican. And they were talking about how a few people have, have dared, you know, lift their heads a little bit and say that they're for, for Biden this year. But they did debunk one of the biggest stories, Jim, about the villages, which is yeah. that the villages, this retirement community, had the highest rate of sexually transmitted diseases in the entire <laughs> great. Florida great. <laughs> because there was 10 women for every man. And these men were like exhausted. But um, uh, apparently that's not true. That was a that was that they really don't have the highest. Weren't you disappointed? I guess, I guess they're up there. But it's not quite um, so. But, not the point one. was, yeah, they're not number one. But the point is that there are more Democrats raising their heads, and they did have a little golf uh, cart parade for uh, Biden a couple of weeks ago. Usually they're for Trump, and they have big Trump flotillas and boats, etc. But anyway, it was a fun listen. Is Chad, like, is, you know, I should know this before you get to Chad. The villages, I assume, is a high end. Is it a high end thing, or, or is it a? Well, I would guess it's, it can't be cheap if you got a polo fields and yeah, fifty golf courses. And That's I don't, I don't, point. I have not investigated yet. Thank God, I'm not, I'm not, not quite ready there for the yet. Retirement community, yet. Chad. I'm sorry, you're on. You're from Philly, my hometown. Hey, Chad. Hey, Jim. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. You too. Um, so. Thank you. So I'm calling in. I had a, a cool idea a couple years ago that I thought was um, pretty neat and I wanted to share. Please. Um, the idea was that you elect a president for one six-year term. At the end of that six years, you have a vote to decide if you want to keep that president for an additional two years. If they lose that vote, then you bring in two new candidates for to do the process all over again. So it's not an incumbent running against somebody. It's an incumbent running against their oh. own record. I thought what you were going to say to make Marjorie happy is you do one term for six years, then you go to jail for six years, and then you come back. <laughs> that's where I saw it. <laughs> that's, by the way, that wow. is some creative. That's interesting. You've by the way, creative. that is not unlike what Mitt Romney was proposing. Instead, Well, I guess, well, maybe. He was uh, judges, by the way, who aren't running against somebody else in most uh, uh, in most settings, at least in this part of the world where there aren't elections. He was suggesting that, Sen- actually, this is not parallel at all forget what i said chad it's an excellent and interesting idea and thanks for contributing it i mean you know there's not enough thought about how democracy well we think about how it's not working but we don't spend enough time thinking about how to reform it or fix it and so even though i'm a little suspect about joe biden's 180 day committee on uh, what the courts should look like what reform i think it's an avoidance Mechanism, so he doesn't have to answer the question about court expansion, as Brunier put it. Uh, the notion that there actually could be intelligent study of how 
the courts work or don't is a pretty appealing kind of thing, don't you think? You know, um, this is another one that I, I, I really don't know enough about to have a, a oh, firm go ahead. on have expanding a, go the ahead. courts. But so, so the, the scenario would be, okay, the Democrats are in power. They put on three more justices and the Republicans back. They put mm. three more justices. I mean, if we get up to like 25 people on the court, why is that so terrible? That's what Bernie Sanders. Oh, Bernie Sanders will end up with 87 people. Yeah. Well, I think there is, why a is number that a problem? because in theory, this gets back to not how the court is now divided like it is. But mm-hmm. theoretically, these courts are collegial bodies where right. there's collaborative decision making and a certain number, I guess one would say, is workable. I don't know what the magic number is. A certain number isn't. But we'll, we'll return yeah. to that. At, I, well, uh, they some could point. be collegial. You should, Zoom. Test the, Zoom, you should testify Jim. before the uh, bipartisan Biden so? committee, assuming Biden is the president of the United States. We'll see. We're going to talk to a guy in a minute who thinks he's not going to be the next president of the United States states 20 minutes okay. Corey lewandowski joins us who's um, up first uh, uh linda downey is up first linda downey from the pine street inn is going to talk about their get out the vote effort among the homeless community and how the shelter is coping in the midst of this pandemic and it's not easy you're listening to 89.7 gbh boston public radio Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mark Regan. We've been talking a lot about how complicated voting has been this election. But for anyone experiencing homelessness, it's obviously that much harder. Joining us in line to talk about what the Pine Street Inn is doing to help its residents vote in this election and more is Lyndia Downey. Lyndia, of course, is president and executive director of the Pine Street Inn. Lyndia, good to talk to you as always. Good to, good to hear you. Well, great to talk to you too, Lindia. So we have a lot of questions, but let's just start with, uh, since the election is so close, what are you doing at Pine Street about uh, residents voting? So we've been registering people for many years. Uh, we, we do it every year, but we obviously get a lot more interest during the presidential elections. This year was much more challenging, frankly, than, than past years because of the pandemic. But we both in our shelters and in our 38 houses now where people have moved out of homelessness, we actively usually have uh, volunteers helping people register, answering their questions, uh, helping people get to the polls if they're going to vote in person. And this year, we have an amazing group of young people. They're called the Ambassadors. They organized really all of the voter registration this year at the shelters and at our houses. Well, you know, I think a, just so, I'm sorry, God, Margaret. I was just going to say, I think a lot of people erroneously believe that you can't vote if you are homeless because you don't have an address, but that's wrong. That's wrong. That, it's probably the biggest question we get from people. I don't have a permanent address. You can use our shelters as a permanent address. In Massachusetts, you can use shelter as a permanent address. So that's the address we use for people. Uh, occasionally someone on the street wants to register and we, we say to them, use the shelter address, even if you're not coming in. You know, a lot of people who stay out, use our address to get their mail. Right. So, um, so th- that's a misnomer. You absolutely can register even if you don't have a permanent address. We, you can use uh, across the state um, a shelter address. You know, I, I said to you the other night on television, I was really uh, moved actually by a quote or two from a, a guest of yours who did vote or planned to vote uh, in Adrian Walker's column in the Globe. Describe to us the motivations and I think the wonderful thing is they're not very different from those of us lucky enough not to be homeless. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jim, because over the years as we've done this, 
I've rarely heard, I'm not interested, my vote doesn't count. Mm-hmm. We've, we've gotten questions, like Marjorie said, but more often we've got, how do I do it? You know, I'm here. I used to be, I used to live in Quincy. Am I still registered there? But, but interestingly enough, I didn't hear a lot of cynicism. I heard a lot of, I've always voted just because I'm homeless now. I still want to vote. How do yeah. I do it? People, you know, quite a few people saw it as a source of, of civic pride. And, you know, when you're homeless, you lose so much. And this is one little bit of normal, frankly, that, uh, and a little bit of routine that you had before you became homeless. And, you, and, you know, you'll have, have again, hopefully, when you're not homeless anymore. But we didn't hear a lot of, you know, I'm not interested. Uh, a lot of, I see it as my duty to vote. Uh, good to know what the process is this year. Those were the kind of comments we got. So, Lindy Downey from Pine Street, how how does a homeless shelter operate in the midst of a pandemic? What's the last few months been like? Well, I would say the spring was uh, horrible. Frankly, we we were able to uh, you know deal with the overcrowding by renting up a uh, working with the with the mayor's office and and. Um, leasing up a building from Suffolk University. So we were able to really run the shelters at about 60% of capacity, which is where we are now. We've since moved into a hotel at 891 Mass Ave. Uh, even with that, we're still short beds heading into the winter. It's been very different. It's, it's uh, interestingly, very quiet because we're running about 60% of capacity. The hotel's quite busy, but people there are sharing quite large rooms, and we do have some social distancing opportunities there. Uh, and the shelter, you know, we're every third bed with plastic sheets between the bed. People are eating two to a table at dinner, you know, for a place, places that are normally very packed and crowded. Uh, that, you know, that's the, the plus side. I think the, the really tough part, Marjorie, has been the, the high incidents we saw through the spring, uh, getting people, finding isolation sites, getting people in there, uh, making sure, you know, they, they obviously couldn't stay in shelter be, because of, the risk of infecting other people. So that was difficult. I think we're starting to see another uh, spike, just like the rest of the state, as people are out and about more, but also as the weather gets colder, people are staying in more often. So, you know, we went from less than 1% past really three months, and, and you know, we, we spiked up to, I think, 9 or 10% this, this week. So it's been very stressful for the staff and, and, and the guests. And I think everybody's doing the best they can because, uh, you know, there's no, there's no playbook on this. You, you do the best you can. You know, you, know, you mentioned uh, the spiking uh, with winter. I mean, there are other problems that you know far better than we is there's this dysfunctional, pathetic Congress has not passed another relief bill, which means a lot of people out of work uh, are going to suffer even more than they were when the, CARES Act money ran out. Uh, we know there was an eviction moratorium that expired last Saturday. And while the governor has, I think, put $100 million towards rental assistance and foreclosure assistance and that sort of thing, a lot of the advocates, uh, Lou Finfers of the world and others, think it's not nearly enough uh, money. So uh, I'm assuming the difficulty you've had in good weather becomes exponentially more difficult under those conditions, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're obviously worried about um, the eviction moratorium expiring. And I think the people that will be most at risk that were 
where landlords had started eviction proceedings before the pandemic and then stopped. And now they'll be going back into housing court. Mm. And those will be the people that are most at risk because they'll be the, the, the folks. And, and, and look, we we've been really clear with the state. We don't have any room. Uh, we're working with the state to even bring up additional overflow beds for the baseline, you know, heading into the winter, not yet increased demand. Um, you know, the only good news, Jim, I would say is uh, the courts move slowly and there's, you know, still, I think, getting back to full speed. That'll slow things down. But frankly, that'll be a blessing. And, and I think we'll have to see how the money goes and, you know, possibly go back if it looks like that's not sufficient. It's one hundred and seventy seven million. And it's it's um, it's it's terrific that, you know, we've got a starting point. I think the other thing that stays has to think about, how do you access this money quickly so that yeah. It's, yeah. if it's imminent, you get the money in the landlord's hands without a lot of administrative processes? And I, I think we've got to be a little bit more nimble on that. Yeah, I spoke to Deborah Ramirez the other night, who, uh, to her credit, was the, was the wife of Ralph Gantz, obviously the chief justice who died, who cared deeply about these issues in the courts and eviction. And she's advocating still in his memory for this. And she talked about her daughter being a, uh, a young law student at Harvard Legal Aid Bureau and about how despite the best of intentions, as you say, on paper it sounds great, but the administrative uh, uh, process is torturous yeah. and long so more time is needed you know when you were talking uh lindia downey i was thinking you know i and marjorie we work out of our house most days and you really don't have to go out unless you choose to you can order food in groceries can be delivered meals that sort of stuff what's the fear quotient of your guests who don't have any of those luxuries that we're lucky enough to have in terms of the virus well, I mean, I think it's real. It's palatable. You can feel it when when you're in the shelters. There's no question about it because people know they don't have another option and they know what are their choices right now. They can sleep outside as the weather gets colder. That's that's for a lot of people, you know, not a reasonable option or they can put themselves at risk of the virus. And we are doing everything to do social distancing. You know, we've been really grateful for the, the community that has made masks for us that, you know, the the washable masks that we're giving to the guests, but people are really worried about it. It's on their mind comes up in almost every conversation I have with people, but you know, they're, they're between a horrible rock and a horrible hard place at at the moment. And uh, no, we're going to do our best to get through it, but it's, it's going to be a tough, tough winter. No question. How, how, how significant has the rate of infection been? I would imagine in a shelter, no matter what you do, it's difficult because there's different people in yeah. different days. Yeah. You know, is it 5%, yeah. 10% more? Well, it, at the worst of it, Marjorie, it was 36% was our high wow. in the spring. And look, I'm convinced that the virus was around everywhere, of course, before we started doing anything about it. And, and so I think we, you know, people were infected and asymptomatic and spread it to other people and they were sitting right next to somebody at dinner, they were sleeping less than three feet away from yeah. someone else. Uh, you know, just interestingly enough, uh, we've been working with Healthcare for the Homeless and the Broad Institute, and it turns out that um, the, the, uh, the virus that spread through Pine Street is an exact match for the, the virus from Biogen. And so there seems oh to be... Really? There seems to be a genetic match. And, and so it just goes to show you how simply this thing could spread, right? Maybe one of our guests worked at the hotel. Don't know, right? Maybe yeah. um, maybe someone on staff 
went to the conference. Maybe someone had a relative or someone they live with went to the conference, came home, gave it to somebody, you know, so it's just insidious. And um, it is really hard to do infection control and shelter because in Massachusetts, especially in the large cities, we've relied on large, large congregate shelters like Pine Street, like the city's own shelter. And those, you know, were not physically uh, set up for infection control uh, beyond pretty simple stuff. And so it's enormously challenging. I mean, I, I think the reason we saw a large decrease over the summer and into the early part of the fall was we had protective equipment. Uh, we had social distancing. We were able to decrowd. And we've got to keep doing that if we don't want these numbers to spike back up again. We're talking to Lydia Downey, who runs the Pine Street. And Lydia, it, it's only one day. But on the other hand, Thanksgiving is, is a day that I think has been kind of a wonderful day at Pine Street for years. Um, Lots of people coming to serve really nice meals in a festive setting. What's going to happen this year? Well, it's not going to look anything like past years. We will, you know, possibly, you know, we hope have some dignitaries come and, um, you know, maybe do something outside, something ceremonial, carve the turkeys outside. But inside, you know, we're not going to have volunteers this year because we just don't want to put people at risk. You know, a lot of our volunteers... Honestly, we've got volunteers that have been coming for 25, 30 years, and it's a tradition for us and for them, and it really is like homecoming. Um, they're so much a part of that day for us, and they're, and they're, and they're with us all year, but it's, uh, I think people are really sad about it. I think it's, it's going to be difficult. Part of the reason we try and make Thanksgiving festive is that if you're homeless, it's one of the worst days of the year. You just feel like everybody's got family and friends and they're going somewhere and you, you know, you're, you're stuck at Pine street or you're, you're staying out. Uh, so that we've tried to just make it festive, take people's mind off, you know, the situation they're in, but it, it's just going to be very subdued, very different. You know, we'll, we'll have Turkey. We'll, we'll certainly have dinner, but you know, it'll be two people to a table. It will be yeah. very quiet. Uh, so it's going to be a tough year The uh, on that front. No question about it. By the way, if you want to help through that tough year, it's pinestreetin.org. You know, uh, unlike at least one person in this conversation, uh, you get hives whenever you're praised for your work. So I'm not even going to waste my time saying what an incredible thing you're doing. And you always deflect attention wonderfully to your incredible staff. Uh, I can't even imagine doing what your staff does in normal times. But in these times, it... I, I, I no idea how they're how is that working out? How are they doing? Uh, well, you know what I mean. How are they doing? Honestly, they're tired. They're anxious, just like everybody else. Uh, you know, they have done no other way to say, it. you know, they've done heroic work. The shelter staff have worked through all this. The outreach team has worked through all this. The kitchen staff, the housekeeping staff. Uh, none of them have uh, missed a beat. You know, we haven't missed a, a, a meal. Uh, we haven't missed a delivery for the catering company that we run as a job training program. And my hats are off to them. I, I don't know how else to say it. They are dedicated. They are showing up even though they're afraid. Uh, they're doing the best they can with their own anxiety and then trying to help the guests deal with their anxiety a, about this mm-hmm. virus. And, you know, they don't get enough praise for it. And, and um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's what makes Pine Street what it is, is the fact that we have staff who do this work and who, uh, you know, don't often put themselves first. But this has been an enormous strain on, on our frontline staff. There's no question about it. 
So before you go, when you were honored by your alma mater, University of Vermont, how'd you deal with that? That must have been torturous for you, was it? You have to talk well, about yourself. Thanks for mentioning that, Jim. <laughs> um, you know, listen, it was a huge shock, and it was it was lovely, and and you know, to be picked out of what a what is you know an incredible uh, base of of alumni. I just I was totally flattered, and it was it was really lovely, and it was a remote ceremony, which was which was nice. Uh, so you know, very grateful for it. It's it, you know, it's it's you know, as as I said, the the reward goes to the people who do I think the hard work, but. Uh, nice to be recognized. Well, nobody deserves it more. Lindia Downey, good luck through the winter, and thanks so much for calling in. Thank you thank, both. Thank you, Lindia. Lindia Downey is the president and executive director of the Pine Street Inn, which provides permanent supportive housing, job training and placement, emergency shelter, and street outreach to more than 1,600 homeless men and women every day. Uh, thanks again to Lindia Downey. Up next, we continue our election coverage with President Trump's senior advisor, Corey Lewandowski. He's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And in his final bid for re-election, President Trump is setting on a closing message. The coronavirus is, quote, rounding the turn. Is this a strategy that resonates with voters since cases and deaths aren't rounding anything? It appears they're actually going straight up. Joining us to talk about this and how Trump's second term agenda will position America to be great again is Corey Lewandowski. Corey is President Trump's senior campaign advisor, former campaign manager. Corey, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for calling in. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, Corey, good to talk to you again. So a lot of people are nervous wreck about this election coming up. It's like, is it three days or four days? Whatever. Today's Friday, Friday, whatever it ends it on Tuesday, it's sort soon. of. <laughs> so uh, are you a nervous wreck, Corey Lewandowski? You're feeling okay? Well, I'm not a nervous wreck. I feel really, really good about where the president is right now. Um, you know, four years ago at this point, uh, most of the media counted the president out of the race. The Washington Post reported that his chances of winning were approaching zero. The Los Angeles Times said that Hillary Clinton would get 352 electoral votes. We know how that turned out. So I feel very good about where the president is right now, to be honest. You know, Corey, I read your piece in The Hill a week or so ago. Uh, saying, you used a term that I'd never heard before. Or you didn't invent it, but a preference falsification. Is that, did I remember that correctly or not? Is that what, you, that what it was? You, you make, Jim, you make me sound so smart. I mean, I have written a couple of New York Times bestsellers, but, you know, I appreciate that. But yes, well, no, no, know, no, no. But, for a guy but, from Lowell, I used a big word, so I appreciate that. I yeah, did, but, yeah, but, Corey, the important part is what I said. Those weren't your words. You borrowed them from somebody else. You don't get credit for that. But in any case, <laughs> so I read this thing, and you made the case, it's sort of like you just made to Marjorie, that, you know, the polls were way off in 2016, and they were way, they're, they're way off again in 2020. And I went back, and you know this is the case. The national numbers were off, if you use the averages, like at Real Clear Politics, by one percentage point. They had Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote, I think, by 3%. She ended up winning by 2%. The, the polls weren't wrong. The analysts were wrong. When they looked at the state polls that were, for the most part, pretty close in some of the swing states, they all just assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to carry the day because of this national thing. So the polls weren't that wrong, were they? Well, they were. When you look at you go back and look at the state of Michigan four years ago, yeah. never once in, in uh, 2016 did any public poll show that Donald Trump was going to win the state of Michigan. Now, granted, he won by 10,704 yeah. votes and we never had a lead. 
But if you look at the Trafalgar poll, which came out on Tuesday, it shows that Donald Trump's ahead by 2%. Never did that happen four years ago. So Trafalgar was the most accurate. It showed that Donald Trump is going to win Michigan by two points. It shows he's going to win North Carolina by three points. If that is the case, then this race is over. And by the way, let me just run through with you some numbers in the state of Florida. The last six people who won the state of Florida have been elected president of the United States. Let me repeat that. The last six people who won the state of Florida have become the president of the United States. And right now, Donald Trump is going to go into Florida with an early vote absentee ballot vote down about 200,000 votes, which means he wins the state by 2%. 2% of the state of Florida is a complete blowout. Well, wait a second. Al Gore won Florida in 2000. He wasn't elected president. But hey, I'm pumped. Hey, Thank you very much, Corey. That's called, that's called revisionist history, baby. We call it hanging Chad. We're talking to Corey Lewandowski from the so Trump Corey, campaign. So, Corey, um, we've talked before. I, I am not a big fan of President Trump. But I remember when he got, got sick, I was thinking, you know, this could this could be a game changer. He could come out of this and say, I've had coronavirus. I understand what it's like. I think... We need to wear masks. We need to crack down. Masks are important. Social distancing is important. I thought he could really do a turnaround. And if you do look at what people say in, in, in polls, I know you're not a fan of the polls, but his handling of the coronavirus has upset particularly older people, even in places like the villages, which has been a Republican stronghold. So in I Florida. guess I'm wondering, why, why, why didn't he do that? It didn't it seem to be such an easy way to show empathy and for people... You know, Marjorie, Marjorie, let me ask you, and I mean this. When was the last time the government mandated people wear something? Ever. So well, if, mask, if, if, if today it starts with masks, tomorrow can they mandate gloves? Because we know that the COVID virus is sometimes transmitted from people touching certain things. And so can the government mandate much. gloves? If they can mandate gloves and they can mandate masks, can they mandate what color hat you wear in the winter? What, what, at what point does the Constitution and freedoms and liberties come into play where we say we're the greatest country in the world and we don't mandate what you do and what you wear? Look, I think it's about personal responsibility. So the question is, and, and there is the, the science on this, and, and National Review did a whole story on this yesterday about how masks don't matter. But even if they did matter, does mandating of masks determine what comes next? And we have seen now that the Supreme Court has ruled on multiple occasions that governors have overstepped their bounds in mandating what people wear. And if today it's masks, tomorrow can they mandate gloves? And if that's the case, in England can they mandate that you have to wear a certain color? At what point do personal liberties come into play and well, we realize that people have overstepped their bounds? Corey, Corey, you know the answer to that. Your personal liberties stop when you're going to impact the personal freedom and health and danger that's that, Marjorie, to that's other not what people. The Constitution says. That's not what the Constitution says. So you look, know, I, I, guide my, I guide my life by something called the U.S. Constitution. Now, hey, maybe people don't want to remember that, but mm-hmm. governors across this country have clearly overstepped their bounds, including in Michigan, including in Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Courts in those respective states have said the governors have overstepped their bounds and mandated things which aren't legal. So when do we stop people from mandating things or what they have to wear? If you want to, if you're a private business, you're American Airlines or you're Delta mm-hmm. Airlines, and you dictate that people don't wear masks, you can do that because you're a private business. But if the government mandates that you have to wear a mask 
or you have to wear gloves, or you have to wear a blue hat on Tuesday. Okay, we got it. We when got it. We got Corey, it, Corey. Corey, but can we go? Just re- we just remember one thing. The pandemic was not around when our founding fathers were writing the Constitution. Well, you don't have to go. Go, ahead, Margaret, you don't have to go back to the founding fathers. Corey, you don't have to go to the founding fathers. There are a ton of public health things where government every single day is mandating things. You can't smoke in a restaurant in virtually any state in America. Your that's car true. has that's to be true. positioned hey, a certain that's way. That's not a federal law, by the way. Hey, Jim, Jim but, yeah. that's not a federal law. Just so we're clear, it's not a federal law that you can't smoke in a restaurant. And by the way, in my home state that's of New Hampshire, you don't have to wear a seatbelt if you're over 18 years old because there's no federal law that says you have to. That's now, why it's called live free and die. Hey, Corey Lewandowski, hey. Though, I want to I want to stay that's on the true. same I want to stay on the same subject for a second. Uh, I was wa- Marjorie tells me I have to watch Fox News more than I do because you get a better sense of the sp- I mean this seriously a spectrum of the views of the world rather than just we always advise our people don't just listen to people who agree with you. So I'm watching Laura Ingram and one of the chief surrogates for the president is on last night his son Donald Trump Jr. And he made a comment about uh, deaths from coronavirus. I'm sure you've heard it, but here's just a little sampling of what Don, uh, Donald Trump Jr. said last night. The number is almost nothing because we've gotten control of this thing. We understand how, to, how it works. They have the therapeutics to be able to deal with this. If you look at that, look at my Instagram, it's gone to almost nothing. As you know, Corey, a thousand people died yesterday, uh, which I assume you would agree, I've known you for a long time, is not nothing, particularly for the people who love those thousand people. So rather than us arguing, uh, you know, the constitutionality of a mask uh, mandate, it's just, you know, I asked Chuck Todd this question yesterday, and I'll ask you. It was so easy to do the things to address the coronavirus uh, concerns of people and the health concerns that, in my opinion, didn't fly in the face of uh, uh, your and the president's position on individual freedom. It would have been so easy to make sure there was a relief package so that the stock market, which the president touts quite often, didn't drop 2,000 points four days before, five days, six days before the election. I really don't know. He didn't have to cross lines that Trump doesn't want to cross to, to deal with the two biggest issues of our time, not to mention, I guess, the third biggest issue, racial inequity. Why didn't he do those things? Forget the mass mandate. I mean, just deal with, so, so with Jim, some of the basics. Let's, let's just say, and I, I, let's just say we took the let's just say we took the philosophy of Governor Cuomo in New York. Yeah. OK, who, as you as you know, use the National Guard to around the town, literally put us under lockdown. OK. Because he wanted to control the COVID virus pandemic. He took the National Guard and he surrounded the town of New Rochelle. And what he said was, nobody in, nobody out. But what also did Governor Cuomo do? He took people who were COVID positive and put them into nursing homes. So if that's the philosophy we're going to use, and we're going to use Governor Cuomo's philosophy. I didn't mention Governor Cuomo. Okay, I didn't so, mention go- so, so, who do you, so which governor do you want to use? I don't want to use a governor. Model? I want to ensure. But, let me give you one. Jim, I'll give you one example. About, no, that Corey, let me give you one the, example. You asked the president giving the governor exactly the opportunity to decide how Here it is. To I'm going to I'm going to give you an example. You asked for governor, one. I'm going to ask for I'll give you an example. You tell me how much business you tell you tell me how much money every you tell me every governor. Whether it's Sununu, Baker, whoever it is, Inslee, you tell me how much money you need to ensure that what I said in Atlanta at the CDC about testing, that anybody who wants a test can get it, 
comes true, and I will make sure that there are enough federal dollars to make that happen, period. And you know, as well as anybody, this whole BS about the reason the number of cases is up is because there's more testing. Part of that is true. But as you know, the number of cases, uh, that percentage far outstrips the number of tests. By the way, I'm not, I just don't understand that. I'm not even... You, I just don't understand why the basic things that a federal government can do, even from those who believe in a restrained federal government, I don't understand why your candidate didn't do it. Jim, we, this candidate gave the governors the opportunity to decide what was best for their people. And each governor had the obligation to decide how they decided to deal with the pandemic. And Governor Christine Noman, South Dakota, said, it's not my job nor my legal authority to declare yep. a business essential and non-essential, which is a very different course of action than how Governor Cuomo in the state of New York dealt with this pandemic. And what we have seen is that New York is a ghost town, okay? Businesses have gone out of business. And more than that, the highest rate of deaths have occurred in the state of New York because Governor Cuomo took the sickest people and stuck them into nursing homes. Well, that's not and why. That's, that's not true. Friend, 100%, hey, Marjorie, it's 100% true. It's empirical. No, it, it's empirical Corey, data. Corey, we didn't know as much about the disease then, and that's why there were more deaths. It, it, there are fewer deaths now because we're younger people and because we know more about the um, disease. But let me ask you something different, uh, Corey. Um, uh, by the way, I know you would dismiss this right away because it's CNN and it's fake news, uh, but Sanjay Gupta, who's a pretty respected doctor over there, has done studies that shown that in the uh, counties where the president has held rallies, um, most without masks and w- with little social distancing, they've had spikes in 82% of them. So that that's a pretty upsetting um, bit of information. But anyway, the last time I talked to you, I asked you about QAnon. And correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but I think you told me that you didn't really know much about them. A lot of people are increasingly concerned about QAnon because the president has demurred when asked about it as well. And this is a group, and it's spreading in in the military and police. There's even 31 uh, Republicans um, who are running for office or or trying to get into office as Congress people who think that who have links to this group, and they think one in Massachusetts, by the way, Jim McGovern's opponent. Yeah, that Tom Hanks is a cannibal and Hillary Clinton is you know a Satan worshiping pedophile running a sex ring. Um, have you had a chance to, uh, I mean, I just wonder if you think it's a little bit out there. I've looked at it recently. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you. Mm -hmm. The CNN chief legal analyst, Mm -hmm. you know, Jeffrey Tubin, who's still employed by CNN. Have you guys talked about his scandal where he decided to get on a zoom call and decide to do something so disgusting. And by the way, he hasn't been fired yet, Marjorie. So if we're going to talk about people employed by CNN, CNN, let's make sure that everybody on your network understands that Jeffrey Tubin, who's an attorney is going to be able to get himself off. You okay. understand, right? And let's make sure all attorney, Corey, can you stop CNN for, let him finish and then let him finish Please. and then you can do hey, your thing. Hey, Marjorie, Go ahead, Corey. Marjorie, do you know who what? else CNN employed? <laughs> do you know who else CNN employed? Who? A guy by the name of Andy McCabe, who was charged with lying to the FBI. We call that perjury in the big leagues, okay? He was yep. charged with lying to the FBI on four separate occasions. So if you're going to use CNN as a metaphor or a criteria for what is real news, mm-hmm. then let's make sure we clearly articulate who they employ, which is Jeffrey Tubin. Okay. Andy McCabe. 
Okay, are you because done? Nobody are you done? understands what that is. <laughs> are you hey, done yet, Marjorie, Corey? Marjorie, okay, it's her turn. Done? Can, Corey, you sound it's Marjorie's like the president turn. Go ahead. The first debate, Corey, give us a break here. Go I don't ahead. think you want to imitate the president of the first debate. I just want to say for the record that I've asked Corey Lewandowski twice about this group that is gaining credence in the Republican Party and that the president has refused to denounce that, that thinks Tom Hanks is a cannibal and Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring. Twice now he's refused to um, denounce them. So that's fine. Let's move on. Corey, Corey. Hey, can, you don't uh, want me to answer. I'll answer your question, Mark. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. QAnon is not on the ballot. You know what is on the ballot? Joe Biden's. I'm asking you if you denounce them, Corey. Hey, I don't know Simple QAnon. question. And by you the don't way, know them. QAnon's okay. on the ballot. Why don't you ask Joe Biden if he still thinks that black Americans are sexual predators? If they're super predators, why don't you ask him? Hillary Clinton. Well, it was Hillary Clinton. It was not Joe hey, Biden. Or so. Why don't you ask Joe Biden if he survived COVID by having a black woman stock his shelves? Because that's what he said 30 days ago. Why don't you ask Joe Biden how much he hates white America? Mm-hmm. Because the guy's a perpetual racist. And he gave the eulogy at the Grand Wizard of what we call the exalted Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. Those are factual matters that you guys don't want to talk about. You hate this president more than you love their your your country. Corey, can I and tell you? Changed. Can I give you one small piece of advice? Because uh, <laughs> respectfully, you should actually listen to the show. We have talked about Bob Bird's funeral. We have talked about Hillary Jeffrey Clinton. Refer- we have talked about Jeffrey Tubin. We have talked about uh, Hillary Clinton using the term "sexual predator." Uh, we actually do try to be relatively fair. And so in the spirit of relative fairness and to bring the temperature down a bit, I love yeah, that. Jim, uh, Jim, nobody cares about QAnon, Jim. And I love you. Are you kidding me? Corey, if you don't quickly, know about ahead. it and haven't read Jim, about it, then you Jim, don't know. Marjorie, it's tearing apart listen, families. Listen, go ahead. You sound a little hysterical, part. Corey. Part. Yeah. You, know what, you know what people care about in this election? What What's do they a, care about, Corey? Security. They care about safety and security for their families. They care about a job. They Mm -hmm. care about making sure that they have a safe place to worship, a safe place to send their kids, a safe business to go to. And that's not an American. That's not a Democrat or Republican ideal. That's an American ideal. And I will bet you, and I happen to know the polls, that if you talk about QAnon, there is nobody going to the polls that's saying who supports or doesn't support QAnon. What they're saying is, how can I best provide for my family? And that's what this is about. Well, By the way, if they're concerned about, if they're concerned, if they're, if they are concerned about, and people are concerned about those things, that's why the disgraceful handling of the virus is hurting the present. Cause we would have schools and jobs and all these and Thanksgiving and Halloween. If we had a guy that took this seriously, who goes around running, you know, hey, get hey, together with no you mean, like, you mean like California, right? You mean like California, like Governor Newsom and what he's done out there. So you're saying that they're better off in California than you are in Massachusetts. Or in I'm Hampshire. saying we have the worst record we, in the world. We have, a Democratic governor in, we have a Democratic governor in California yeah. who has such pejorative and draconian policies that businesses are leaving by the truckload okay. every single day. So, so that's a fact. Okay. It's yeah, a but fact. Corey, Corey, if I may, we only have a minute left. He's not running for president. Joe Biden's running for president and is as is Donald Trump. And as you said a minute ago, people are concerned about their security. Joe Biden didn't say stand back and stand by uh, at, a, at a debate. And I think you would acknowledge that there are a lot of people who swear by every single word this president of the United States says. And I think there are a lot of families. And I'm guessing as a father, you may be one of them who is concerned about potential violence post-election and it's pretty hard to 
deny, I'm sure you are, and it's pretty hard to deny that this president has, in. I think it's fair to say, more invited it than discouraged it. So we only have 30 seconds well, left. Jim, what I was going to ask you, what, let, what let I was going to ask you. Let me finish with this, Jim. Jim let okay, me yeah, this. go ahead. Donald Trump was the first person to recommend that we cancel flights coming in from mainland China unless you're an American citizen or a permanent green card holder. At yep. the time, Joe Biden said that's xenophobic. That's a factual accuracy. He didn't say and that was xenophobic. He says the president is xenophobic. He didn't say that was xenophobic. Anyway, Corey. But, but, Fifteen but seconds. Go ahead. Hey, guys, Jim, Marjorie. I've oh got gosh. Okay. Yep. Who I want to see in the school system? We should close yep. our borders and open our schools so people can get back to work every day. Corey, we got to go. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we that actually was, do appreciate you calling in. Do, Maybe hard do, to but I'm exhausted. Like discern. I said, it was like the first debate. I'm My taking the month off. Hey, Corey, be well. Talk to you again soon. Good luck uh, to your family. Hope they're well. Okay. Coming up, the Witch City Halloween in Salem. Mayor Kim Driscoll is going to be here to tell Let's us about Let's get in a fight with her, too. <laughs> well, i just like to get a word in edgewise. Anyway, she's on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll joins us, urging a very different Halloween in her city. Then it's Emily Rooney with a tribute to Travis Roy and more. Then travel writer Rick Steves says his experience abroad has taught him much about what good governance looks like. He no longer buys into the American narrative of big government bad, small government good. Europe taught him that big government can be good. In a few minutes, he'll join us to explain and share with us his presidential endorsement. President Trump has failed to forcefully condemn white supremacists and right-wing militia groups. New text messages and communications obtained from the Patriot Front militia that grew out of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville show a sophisticated network of men decrying white genocide and preparing for a race war. Up next, Callie Crossley will join us to discuss that and more. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Hello again, Jim. You know, that's why I was at, I've was. i always asked them our contract negotiations with the management here to give us defibrillators at our studios, <laughs> but they they resist. I don't, I don't understand that all, the hesitancy, but that's, that's really for another day. So the CDC is now saying that when it comes to effective physical distancing, six feet isn't always far enough. Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll knew that weeks ago as coronavirus cases rise across the state. She's been urging people to distance well beyond six feet. Her message of the 50,000 people who normally come to her town to celebrate Halloween, this is not the year to come to Salem. She joins us online to talk about the factors that went into making this call, the latest restrictions that are in place this Halloween weekend, and how hard it was to make this decision. Mayor Driscoll, as always, pleasure to talk to you. Great to be on, guys. Hope you're uh, staying warm and dry. Yeah, We're, uh, I, doing our yeah, best. Crazy, crazy weather. So, I, you know, you get a lot of money from and and a lot of excitement up there in Salem, and a lot of your merchants and the locals are very excited. How hard was it to make this decision to keep people out of town? 
Yeah, it's definitely not something that we've taken lightly for sure. I mean, our small business owners are our friends and neighbors, and we have a really strong relationship, always usually aligned trying to bring people into Salem. I think it just sums up the difficulty this year. Um, the, the, with the nooks and crannies of our downtown and in the age of COVID, we really just couldn't have the throngs of costume revelers that typically come here, and all the events and activities were canceled. So you, you ended up just generating large crowds, especially as we head into these last two weekends in October. October that created stationary activity that's just not safe. So we had to take some additional actions, but it wasn't easy. There's a lot of folks here who, you know, are, are going to have um, impacts as a result of this. And I think if we had not done that, there would have been impacts as a result of it. So we're all trying to make the best decisions we can. How do, how, what kind of reaction did you get from small businesses? Well, all of the people who are dependent upon a packed uh, Halloween. And what do you call the weekend before Halloween Junior? What do you call that weekend before? What do you call that? Yeah, Halloween Junior. It's, you do, it's right? Turned okay. into, uh, it's turned into quite a crowd when, you know, when, when especially when Halloween falls on a weekday. Of course, yeah. this year, we had five weekends in October in a full moon and daylight savings and a Saturday Halloween. So we were geared up for, you know, the best. And we ended up with, obviously, a different situation. But what, I mean, seriously, what kind of, re- I mean, you know, well, in one extreme, we have these lunatics armed outside the state house in michigan uh when there was an initial uh, shutdown there even if people understand that it's going to be painful are they accepting of or have you taken a lot of heat yeah, we're taking some heat. I think it's mixed. Um, I would say the vast majority of our business community understand that they have an administration that works with them and supports them and wants to generally, uh, you know, have people in our community celebrating Halloween. And and many people realize we are more than Halloween. Salem is so much more than just October, and we don't want to do things that are going to create a rollback, you know, as we head into November, December, and January. So there is an understanding, but there are also folks who, you know, they're going to lose money and they're concerned about that and they're hanging on by their fingernails now so there's a lot of tension about it can i stay on that for a second the first question marjorie asked you i've read the numbers but they escape me at the moment how important in actual dollars is are these two weekends to the economy of salem mayor driscoll yeah, it's hard to specify exactly what October brings in. And I should be clear, this is more than just about Salem. We have hotels full within the region, course, you know, right. because of October. Um, but we bring in a million dollars in meals tax revenue a year. We bring in a million dollars in hotel motel tax revenues a year. Large portions of that are generated during the month of October. We have parking fees and licensing fees and revenues that come in to support city businesses and, and the cost of some of these activities. So there are, the city's going to feel the pain, by the way, from less revenues and certainly some of our businesses are going to be impacted with just with less people here. And we have had people in October, like we had to take these steps because crowds were building and growing towards the last two weeks. So it hasn't been a ghost town and it's not as though the whole month has been, you know, a a big loser for, for businesses here. It's trying to right size it, which is the really tricky part. We're talking to Kim Driscoll, who's the mayor of Salem, where thousands go every Halloween to celebrate. So how do you actually go about keeping people out? I know, obviously, there's been a lot of stories in the press, but if people are showing up, what do you do? Yeah, so we started out just making sure folks were aware of the announcements. Everything's canceled, and the tricky part about Salem is it's not one event. This isn't as though it's just a concert that you buy a ticket for. People come for the sort of natural street party festival, and then hundreds of little small events, you know, mostly by private um, businesses, all of which were, were 
closed because of the, the mandatory, you know, gathering numbers. So for us, we told people not to come. They still came. We told them not to come unless they had reservations. They still came. So finally, these last two weekends, we certainly, in concert with the state, I can't say enough about the partnership with, uh, with Governor Baker, um, we were really clear. We can't have you coming here. Please do not come. Come after Halloween. And that entailed um, closing parking. All of our public parking garages are closed early. Uh, the trains are not stopping in Salem throughout the day wow. and the evening. So they're going to bypass our community. We are ticketing and towing. We've extended resident parking so that folks aren't parking in other areas. And for this weekend, we have mandatory business closures downtown at 8 p.m. to prevent the sort of street party atmosphere that typically happens when there are bands and DJs and beer tents, none of which is happening this year. So how miserable are you? I'm serious. Um, I'm serious. It is not a boring being um, a local leader or a mayor in these times. And um, the stuff is hard. These are not easy decisions. But we're again, it's there are public health consequences and there are economic consequences. And you you and you have a range of people who manage risk differently. Right. So um, we're trying to make decisions that we think in our overall community's best interest. But they're they're not easy. Right. This is hard stuff. And. You know, we're doing our best to manage risks on a foundation of public health and public safety with flexibility to change and adapt as necessary. Did I read in the paper in the last 24 hours that you were predicting or at least alerting your your constituents that you're now, I guess, whatever the middle category is in terms of risk and your expectation is that you're about to move into the high risk? Is, I mean, the numbers went from like 77 cities and towns last week to 120, I think, this week. is yeah. Did I read that right or did I? Yeah. What's, what's got, causing yeah, that? We're, we're yellow right now. Um, we've been in that moderate risk category. Um, we are seeing an uptick in cases. And the most frustrating part, Jim, is you can't really tie it to, you know, one specific behavior. You know, right. good news, you know, it's not the throngs of visitors who have been here so far, right? We've got communities all around us who are turning red, who, who didn't have costumed revelers the first three, four weeks of October. Um, and, you know, looking at contact tracing, there's certainly a component to it that is the smaller gatherings informally, whether it's in your home or, you know, out and about somewhere, but when your masks are off and, you know, you're eating and drinking, those are the sorts of things that we know are at least one contributing factor, and we know so many people are asymptomatic, so we're really encouraging people to get tested, like twice a month, get a test. And what Are you providing them? Uh, are you making them available, Mayor? Again, in partnership yes. with the state, we have the we have the stop okay. and spread program here. So we have one downtown, you know, really targeting hospitality workers, folks who are in those front you know front line service industries, and then we have a drive through as well at our high school. So we've got six days a week testing going on for free uh, for for Salem residents, anyone who's working or That's living good. in our community. What's happening with the schools up there? We currently have students in person for um, what we call Tier 1, so high-need mm-hmm. students. we got about 700 students in, and we have voted to bring back all of our lower grades, so pre-K mm-hmm. through second grade, as of November 16th. You know what I wonder, Mayor Driscoll? Um, on a typical Halloween, what is it like up in Salem? I mean, is it is it people in costumes going from store to store? They're Salem witch trial reenactments. What goes on? 
Well, it's not with child reenactments, I can assure you that. Um, but it is just a, a street party. Yeah, that was festival. a hell of a question, Marjorie. Yeah, that, it's, well, it's not that. Well, I thought that no, could be, no, no, you know, no, for Halloween. It's you hanging. Oh, my God. No, no, okay. no, no. no. Um, that was, you know, What she meant to say, Mayor history. Driscoll, was, Mayor Driscoll, what she meant to say was, what is going on during a typical Halloween period? It's question Halloween, mark. Jim. Scary, awful stuff, right? That's part yeah. of it. Go but ahead. anyway, go ahead, Mayor I'm Driscoll. Sorry. Go ahead. Thanks, thanks, guys. Um, what, what happens here typically is a really fun street party festival. We have bands, we have DJs, we have beer tents, people are dressed up. Most of the downtown streets are closed so that you can parade around, strut your stuff in your favorite costume. Amazing wow. creativity that people put together. And then we have fireworks um, and we tell people when to leave. We're normally imploring people to take the train to get here, to not drive. And now this year we're curtailing train service. And so it's a real cats are biting the dogs type. <laughs> You know, months for sure. You know, I don't want to make you more unhappy than I'm sure you are, but I, I don't have, I don't understand how someone like you, a, a mayor or whatever it is, a city council, a governor, how do you plan next year's budget when you have no idea if the federal government is going to continue to be as unsupportive as it has been uh, when the state, even if it wants to help you has limited resources they're suffering the same way you are the state government is what do you do plan for the worst case scenario and build up or or how do you do that yeah, it's really difficult. I got to say, right now we're watching our numbers cl- closely. Our first quarter of this fiscal year, our hotel tax revenues are 55% off of last year, 35% oh off God. in meals taxes, and we'll be looking at this next quarter. And obviously, that includes October, so that's usually a big quarter for us. Um, the uncertainties aren't helpful, but neither is cutting your way out of you know this issue. Right now, we need more people. Right, we need we need more services being delivered. We have unemployment rate that was at 2.9% that went up to 18% that is now at 10%. We'll see where it is next month. Um, and so for us, we're tapping some of our savings, you know, that we have in a rainy day account. That's only going to go so far. And we're also, you know, going to be working with residents to identify where are some of the areas that uh, we might be able to come together and have some shared sacrifices on. But it's, um, there's not a lot of easy decisions right now. I feel grateful that I've been in office for a number of years. And so we've weathered some tough things in the past. And, and people really are coming together. I do think we have hundreds of volunteers. We've got people who are signed up to, you know, work on checking on neighbors, uh, helping out with additional testing requirements, the housing assistance programs we're running. So there's some silver linings when you think about community building, but there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of long days, long nights, and um, it's not easy or boring in local government these days, for sure. You know, the Globe had a story about your food bank up there. The Salem Pantry yeah. talked about the numbers soaring there uh, with people, um, in need of food. What's the status there? Yeah, they quadrupled their services early on. It's now about tripled in terms of patrons coming. Um, so we are working closely in partnership with them, and they're doing an amazing job. They not only are serving more people, more people are coming often, and they did a major build-out to help facilitate you know, their own efficiencies in operation. And, and so we're continuing to work. Um, we have a, a really good 
food and security team, we're continuing to work with schools and students. So there's a piece of food happening there. We've got this great nonprofit called Root that we're working with that is training young people for you know kitchens and hospitality work, and they're literally serving prepared meals to seniors, helping delivery them, and the food pantries providing you know everything in between in terms of pantry needs, trying to have healthy food, and work to make sure these services are going to the folks who need them, and that we're being efficient in those operations. And um, it, it's, there's a lot of collaboration, so that's a help. You know, uh, Kim Driscoll, uh, listeners, longtime listeners are aware that you and the mayor of Somerville would come in every year. Obviously, this year is a little different yeah. for an annual uh, Friday quiz. It was vicious every <laughs> single year, I should say, between the two of you. And you have learned in our many conversations how much we not only love Salem, but we love the Peabody Essex Museum. We were talking, speaking of Marjorie's question, are they having witch trials on the streets on That's Halloween? Right. We were talking about this incredible exhibit at the Peabody Essex, and I know they too are urging people to come not in October but a little bit later since you are the mayor and not a mere mortal there have you been able to see this yet or have you not I I have I actually got a tour by the curator it's amazing it'll be here I believe through April um, and I think for Salem residents it's such a, a astounding way to see these documents um, and the and you know so many of the exhibition materials that tell the story of what happened here and a great re- reminder of why we need to continue to fight for, you know, inclusivity to really think about how we can break up these systemic barriers that exist in our community and, you know, that that race that equity work and race relations are so important right now and that's on top of, you know, dealing with the the pandemic that we're all, you know, we're all in that space as local leaders as well. You know, I don't want to damage your reputation at home by asking you this, but do you, did you learn, I mean, we had a Salem State professor, and I'm really embarrassed, I forgot his name, who is an Dad expertise, has written, yeah. Yeah, oh. has written books about this, yeah, yep. when Marjorie was off a couple of weeks ago from, I think, from Salem State. And I learned so much about uh, uh, the witch trials that I didn't know, and how late Massachusetts was in acknowledging these uh, sins of behavior. Did you learn things from that that you didn't know? I learned not only so much from that, but just every day, the history here, you know, you don't have to make anything up in Salem. It really happened in ways that um, I think there are lessons that we can learn today from that. And I feel like compelled as a leader in this place now. Yeah, that we, those stories need to be told and we need to understand how they can apply to, you know, modern day jurisprudence. And there's, and, you know, that's why this exhibit is also important. This is, this really happened. It's not a movie. It's not a story. um, And it could happen again if we're not all careful, for sure. Well, the the so before, hysteria okay. and the misinformation, you know, that that wound up leading to these deaths. I mean, it was just incredible. You think it can't happen yeah, again? Sexual evidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you see it happening again. So, my last question for you is: uh, Do you have to act official on a normal Halloween, or you get to dress up like a <laughs> fool like everybody else? How do you handle Halloween in normal times, Kim Driscoll? It's kind of a working holiday for me, guys. So uh, I'm, there's nobody happier uh, on November 1st than me that everything you know happens smoothly and safely. People got in, they got out. In this case, obviously, there's a bunch of audibles we're calling, uh, but we still want to have a smooth, safe, healthy Halloween. You know, by the way, Mayor, Dris- Mayor Driscoll, can the locals trick-or-treat house to house or is that off the table this year as well? Mixed. I think there are some folks who are doing it, obviously following the DPH guidelines, yeah. so only with your family wearing a face mask. And there are some people who just don't feel comfortable. And so yeah. um, we're allowing people to kind of self-select. 
Okay. You know, well, I, I do. I said the last thing, and now I do have one last thing. Uh, we are voting obsessed, and uh, uh, we are voting obsessed. Let's let's leave it at that. What's the voting picture in Salem in terms of uh, pre-election day voting and making it easy? And what's going on up there? Yeah, really strong turnout so far between both early uh, voting and mail-in ballots. Last time I checked, and it was earlier this week, we're at 13,000 already ballots already cast. I'm sure that number has been surpassed by now. We've had a re- pretty robust, um, you know, early voting hours and locations, and we've had, you know, we've got mail-in drop boxes at all of our fire stations. So I think people are prepared. We've consolidated a few, um, a few locations, but there shouldn't be long waits. We expect it to be a smoothie. Our city clerk and all of these city clerks across the Commonwealth are the unsung heroes here who are doing a ton more work um, throughout this, learning their way through it as well, uh, and a really uh, year where we know turnout's going to be high. I've got a little toy factory outside my office with, you know, volunteers and paid staff who are processing ballots and moving things wow. forward. Very open, very transparent, but it's a, it's a ton of work, and uh, credit, credit and kudos to all of them. Hey, Mayor well, Driscoll, I have to say, we you. wish you luck, and we look forward to having you and Mayor Curtitoni back to battle on the quiz at some point in the hopefully fairly near, near future. So good talking to you, Kim Driscoll. Good luck. Thanks, guys. I'm up for round three, okay, after Halloween. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Kim Driscoll Take care. Is you, the, well. you too. Kim Driscoll is the mayor of Salem, and we thank her again for taking the time to talk to us. Coming up. You know, Emily we don't Rooney. talk, you know, Marjorie, before you tease that Emily Rooney is coming up, yep. one of the luxuries uh, of doing what we do is you can take pot shots at anybody when you're not happy mm-hmm. with how they're performing. I mean, public officials and particular judges. Yep. How'd you like to be running a uh, city uh, in this? I mean, being a responsible, caring mayor or whatever the city manager. How'd you like to be doing that? In the middle of this, when you don't know if the federal government is going to come help you, you have needs that are greater than in normal times, revenues that are not only less than in normal times, but also not dependable, not reliable. I mean, how would you like to be doing that job well, I and, think it's, in these kind of times? I, I think it's horrifying that we haven't come together as a country. I mean, people are out of work. People are facing evictions. People don't know where they're going to live. I, I, you know that we can't help people in this mess. With, with, and the federal government so has got the you. ability to do it. And um, Congress hasn't done it. And the president hasn't done it. And by the anyway, way, one of the fights that ultimately was the divider, as you well know, was whether or not there would be money for state and local governments. And the fact that that was even a dispute is just, no, no, it's just Jim, it's unbelievable. It was for whether there'd be none before That's democratic it. states and local governments. Uh, that exactly. Was, that, right, was, right, right, that was the problem. Okay, coming up, Emily Rooney's here for her famous list of assertions and assignations. Stay tuned to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Brody. She is Marjorie. And Emily Rooney is here for her famous list of fixations and fulminations and more. Emily, of course, is host to Beat the Press, Hello. which you can catch Friday nights. This will be Friday at 7 p.m. right yep. here on GBH2. Hello, Emily. Hey, How are Jim. you? Hey, Marge. Hey, great to talk to you, Emily hey there. Rooney. So, um, 
Kevin Cullen, very sad story. Mm. Travis Roy, uh, people know him, great Boston University hockey player, uh, was injured on his first shift there, and he has died. What do you remember about Travis oh, you Roy, know, Emily? I, I, had, uh, I had him on the show you know, in Greater Boston when I was hosting that many times in the late 90s, early aughts maybe, on all kinds of issues. I mean, you know, he was an advocate for, I mean, he was a quadriplegic, which is as dramatic yep. as it gets. Mm-hmm. He's paralyzed from the neck down, which is eventually, by the way, what killed him. Because he, you know, as you imagine, internal organs and, you know, plumbing and that kind of thing is severely compromised. compromised. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, he was a kid when this happened. Yeah. And almost instantaneously. 20. Yeah, he became an adult, you know. And most of us, I don't know about you, but at age 20... I would have become severely depressed and, uh, I mean, I don't know if I could have made that instant transformation the way he did into, within a year, he'd set up a foundation, he was an advocate, uh, he'd went around speaking to people, he, you know, life wasn't over, I mean, it was really inspiring. You know, I, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to interview him multiple times, I got to interview him once, and I, I have a little sound from that oh, interview, good. I think it was in 2015, and, and the question I asked, and this will not surprise you, either of you particularly, I said something like, you know, I feel sorry for myself when I don't get my way in terms of what I'm having for lunch or something, or if anybody <laughs> looks at me cross-eyed yeah. or something. And I, I, I think what preceded these comments you'll hear is, don't you feel sorry for yourself? And here's just a little bit of this incredible person, Travis Roy. I truly believe we all have an inner spirit that's capable of doing things we never imagined. And I I sure don't feel bad for myself. And in fact, I am. I realize how fortunate I am uh, in so many different ways. There, there's there's a time to, to acknowledge the loss and the sadness, and um, and and you and you just you, you can't change it. But if I can just go in and, and show that I'm doing all right, I'm, I'm uh, living a life, a productive life. Um, they just need to see that that um, that that there is life. I've realized mm. how fortunate I, I am in so many different ways. Can you, you know, imagine? It's, it's interesting because I, I, I think about this a lot, that there are things in life that pass you by. You know, sometimes people don't get married. They don't have children. You know, there's a lot of things that it's not, you know, it's not the end of your life. It's just it's not going to happen for you. But there were so many things for him that were never going to happen, including getting married and having children. And, you know, it just and to have that kind of attitude, it's just... Uh, you know, it's remarkable. And by the way, it, to make it even more stark, Marjorie mentioned his first shift. Yeah. To be precise, 11, 11 seconds, seconds yeah. of playing at BU. 11 seconds, and he was driven into the boards. And uh, he was an incredible advocate, and uh, he was really an impressive character, I have mm-hmm. to say. And if people were not around for this or don't mm-hmm. know much of his story. Kevin did write a very nice yeah. piece this morning in the book, Kevin the Cullen, that, in the Boston Globe, and you should read it. Yeah, I, I was interested to, to hear was that uh, he knew that this surgery he was having was potentially life-threatening, yeah. and he just didn't want to talk about it in advance, and uh, his family knew, of course, and his parents were still alive, but uh, yeah, he didn't want people By the way, to Monday that. night on Greater Boston, we're going to play that interview from 2015, oh, so oh, if you... Never uh, saw and heard uh, Travis Roy directly. You can get to hear him uh, at least one more time uh, on Monday at uh, 7 o'clock. We're talking to Emily Rooney. Yeah. It, one, one quick thing before we move off is one of the things that Colin talked about was that um, he wrote this essay when he was at Tabor Academy, uh, you know, about uh, his rules of, of life and 
oh, he was yeah. a teenager, his 10 rules of life, things like taking nothing for granted, mm. setting goals, resisting peer pressure, respecting others, importance of family and stuff. So he, he was an extraordinary kid, it sounds like to me, even before this terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. He was 45 when he yeah. died. So, Emily Rooney, let's yes. move on to legal seafoods. Mm. I mean, I think there was a shudder that went through many <laughs> many of us yeah. we read, when we read in the Globe today that um, Roger Berkowitz, who's so synonymous with legal seafoods, he is may be legal seafoods. Yeah. selling he is. the restaurant chain. To this uh, PBX, which is some kind of a new corporate restaurant conglomerate that also owns Smith & Walensky, which, by the way, is very marginal. Uh, so, sorry. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, uh, oh, take care of that. So, uh, sorry. Well, they don't advertise yeah. on our area. You know, I, <laughs> Steve, I feel the way Steve DiFilippo, who uh, owns the um, Davios, Davios. Chain, you know, he said he was just shocked. And he said, uh, you know, he wished he had been given an opportunity because he really wants to keep it local. Um, and I understand that feeling. Or, you know, he was talking about when Charlie Sarkis sold Aid and Louis. He, Charlie Sarkis sold his whole chain. He was also paparazzi and one other I can't remember, but... Um, it's sad, and um, you just can't help but think the whole thing is going to change if Roger Berkowitz. I mean, he's so clever with the advertising. Everything yeah. he's oh done God. all along, yeah. even in the pandemic, has been really By clever. The way, he, you, and, and he, do you have he, a bite? He, uh, cause, good. No, because he, I mean, he, he, he tried to sue his insurance agency because he, he claims he is suing. He him. claims that he is covered for a pandemic, and it sure looked like it. I had him on one, one night when I was filling in for you, Jim, and it sounds like he was, but the insurance company is refusing to pay off. And he told me at that night that there's no way they could do takeout. He said, Emily, in the best of nights, it's 5% of my, you know, um, my, my business. He says, I, I can't do it. It's not like other uh, restaurants that could set up some kind of a, an outdoor thing. He just couldn't do it. By the way, just without giving people a headache, the lawsuit thing, which I talked to him about, too, not on the air, just off the air, is is his contention, which I think is a pretty powerful argument, is that a pandemic kind of thing is not excluded from the policy. And in light of the fact that the policy was entered into after we knew about the pandemic, then the insurance company chose not to 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 put it in as an exclusion. Let me just say, though, I mean, by the way, I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, the story says this is possible. That's possible. He's in negotiations. Number one, I love legal seafood, and it's a huge part of this city. Two, I love him. And, you know, if you had to say to me, you know, who are the 10 people who represent Boston mm-hmm. to you in yeah. di- all different kinds of way. Roger is really on <laughs> yes. that pantheon. He yeah. is really he is. A, an incredibly important person. So regardless of what comes out of mm-hmm. this, I hope that that presence stays, whether they sell legal or whatever the hell they do. But again, if you read the story in the Globe, it's unclear it says, what's happening, yeah, except that there's some discussions going on. Th- and it sounds yeah. like what? he could still be the face of it, because um, they've made exceptions for... You know, a la like, Jordan's kind a- a- of thing? Jordan's, because that was sold to the Hathaway Group, and Elliot um, is still... El- Elliot Tatelman is still the face of Jordan, so... Yeah. Well, who knows? Yeah. In any case, uh, we'll uh, follow that, and as time uh, goes along, we will do more. So we finally know who Anonymous <laughs> is, yeah. and uh, Anonymous was the uh, was the signer of an op-ed in the Times, I guess, two years ago. Yeah, was September it, Emily? 2018. Which the New York Times said was a senior person, senior being the key word, as you'll hear in a minute, 
in the Trump administration basically talking about the internal resistance, for lack mm -hmm. of a better expression, stopping Donald Trump from doing the most egregious of uh, things. But now, uh, even though we know who it is, and it's this Miles uh, Taylor guy who was the, uh, well, most recently was the chief of staff to uh, to Homeland Security at the time, at the time he was of deputy Anonymous. Chief. He was deputy chief of staff. Uh, Which is an important position, like, but it's not a senior well, White House. So right. So what's the issue that's become so, a, so the there issue a couple is, of issues? What are they? Okay, so he quit his job, still kept his anonymity, wrote a book that was very similar to some of the complaints he made in the op-ed. He appears on Anderson Cooper last summer. Meanwhile, um, CNN had already hired him as an analyst because he was very critical of the administration. He was a former administration person. They, they claim they didn't know he was anonymous. But Anderson Cooper, thinking there was something similar there, asked him point blank. He said no. In no uncertain terms, he said no. So the other night, he, the other Wednesday, he outed himself in some blog or something. He goes on uh, Chris Cuomo that night. Chris wouldn't let him up for air. He kept saying, why should anybody believe you? You're a liar. You lied to. And then he, he, he veered off a few times and went into some of the stuff that was in the book, which was pretty interesting. But he just kept coming back to this theme that you're a liar. And I thought he, he kind of put his own bosses in, in, in a you know, jackpot because, you know, they're, they're hiring somebody. They've given, they've given license to somebody who's a liar. And then, you know, he, he picks up on the thing. And by the way, the New York Times called you a senior White House official. Don't they have to answer to that? I mean, that's. That's that's baloney. So Eric Wemple from the from the I don't know if you saw that from the Washington Post. Yeah, I did. did a really yeah. critical piece about the Times saying that was totally bogus. It wasn't a senior White House official. Well, you know, well, don't it, you it, wonder Wemple's, Wemple's point I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, don't you wonder all the time when you have reporters quoting senior White House officials? Yeah. I mean who 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 are these people? No, what, I know. What's the what's I know, Marjorie, the criteria? By the way, you know who says yeah. that, Marjorie, oh, all the gosh. time? You know who well, says who what you just said? Who? Donald Trump yeah. says, who are all these senior No, I know. People? He's not totally they're, wrong They're making that. him up. I, saw, I don't and, know but, if they're but, making but, him up. But, you know, I was watching no, Ben no, Bash the no, other no, day. No, my no. source, I'm saying that's my what source, Donald, really? Who is it? You know, I, I don't I'm saying like that's that what Donald Trump is saying. I know, saying. I know. Can I, can I just say two things about this? One, uh, uh, I am totally with the critics. I'm a huge New York Times fan. However... One, saying he's a senior person when you're the deputy chief of staff <laughs> yeah. gives a totally different view. When I read that thing, I remember in 2018, oh, yeah. you're saying to yourself, well, Kellyanne who could Conway? this be? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's got to be one of his inner circle. Yeah, if you would, if someone said yeah. a second uh, tier uh, yeah. administrative uh, person, you'd feel differently. That's one. And yeah. two, the other point that Wemple makes in his piece in the Washington Post is uh, the New York Times very rarely, you would know this better than uh, I, Emily, allows anybody to submit ever uh, an op-ed anonymously. Yeah, it's they, only the rules allegedly it. are yeah. if their life is at risk. They and justified it by saying that this guy was giving us critical information about the resistance inside as if mm -hmm. he had control over it. We were thinking, oh, no. this guy's going to stage some kind of a coup and he's in a position to be able to do so. And that was the justification for printing an anonymous op-ed. Yeah, th yeah I think the criticism is legit, frankly. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I think it would behoove all of us in this business 
it, how it defines senior officials. That's what, that's what I yeah, want to know. Yeah. Who is a senior official? Is it a cabinet member? Is it Kellyanne Conway? Is it the press secretary? Yeah. You know, we just don't I mean, it's know. It's too sweeping, Marjorie. That's exactly right. I mean, this yeah. guy wasn't a nobody, wasn't a lackey, but it's like, yeah. it certainly doesn't rhyme. You, you think of like the inner circle of like 30 people as being yeah. senior, you know. Yeah. Although I don't well, also, doubt one last thing. Have, I don't mean to beat this to death, but the New York Times knows that the marketability of the piece in 2018 was a function of yes. calling the person a senior yes. advisor. That's what Eric Winkle and, said, and, the critic, yeah. Okay. He said that. Okay. So he was well, like calling attention to the fact that he got that they got what they wanted, you know, thousands of hits and views, and, mm-hmm. and it was c- controlling the dialogue for about five days, and then it turns out it was, you know. Relative nobody. You know what I was hoping at the what? time? I was hoping it was Ivanka, but oh, it yeah. didn't turn out that way. So that's, that's, oh, I was man. hoping she was leading the resistance. So in any case, we're talking to Emily Rooney. Is Emily's picture, Emily, is that, Ivanka's picture still up in Times Square? I with think Jared? so. They haven't taken that down I think yet. it's still there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Emily Rooney, here's why she's no, here. No, no, no. What? No, not yet. Well, one oh, more thing. Emily's Emily's Halloween. I forgot something. Yes. Halloween. That's All right. right so, thank you. I, I think actually the city has done the right thing. They are leaving it up to the individual, the individual trick-or-treater. This is Boston now. Other towns have postponed or done organized things. They're not shutting down the streets the way they did. They're not shutting down Beacon Hill or Marlboro Street. There's certain neighborhoods that shut down and then thousands of kids would come from everywhere, which was, it was, it was fun. It was kind of sweet. So now it's just sort of up to the individual you know, you can trick or treat if you want. You know, I don't think you know. There was a lot of stoop sitting that went on up and down those neighborhoods. That's probably not going to happen. People can leave out candy if they want. They can leave notes on the door, whatever they want. But it's it's not going to be an organized thing at all, which I think is fine. Okay. Individual what are you doing in Cambridge, Marjorie? What are you doing in Cambridge? What are we doing in Cambridge? Yeah. I told you what I do every year is I turn off the lights and, yeah, I know and what you do. slink it's down on the couch. So, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm trying to be honest. I, you, are. There, no, you know what? I, I am assuming. Uh, uh, by the way, people back in Brighton, we have some, we have a bit of a technical problem. The reason we're all talking over each other, I don't know what it is, but if somebody back there can uh, take a look at it, it'd be great. But the answer is, I can only speak for my own neighborhood. The mm-hmm. neighborhood group always goes out of its way to leave for you, you know, a little packet with yeah. an orange pumpkin on a piece <laughs> of paper that you glue to your door if you want kids to oh. come and that sort of thing. And there's not; it's actually quite well organized and nice. Obviously, I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Uh, it's really, it's uh, really nice, and uh, they're not doing it this year. Yeah. So I assume that's, that's, again, voluntarily they yeah. decided not to do it. I yeah. think that's good. I mean, okay, individual. Okay, choice. all right. Now, 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 the real reason Emily is here. Incomprehensible. It's out of control. Well, that, how about common sense? Doesn't matter. Why not? This is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's your right. Doesn't matter. I have absolutely no interest. <laughs> Boy, this is the final pre-election I know. list, so actually. I had two lists. Wow. And I'm going to be honest with you. One was a really mean and rigged quiz. Oh. And I put that God. one aside. Oh, no. Good. Marjorie. Marjorie Hayes. Marjorie, Marjorie, quizzes. Marjorie. Marjorie. What? You wanted this one. I did? The, I was rigging it so that you would get every question right. <laughs> oh, good. See? Oh, well. Then See? let's do that next <laughs> Thank week. Goodness. It's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. <laughs> It was on. It was that on. It was really on. It was, it was. It was. It was great. It was on the electrical college, Jim. You were going to flunk every question. Anyway. Okay. Well, thank you for sparing me the humiliation. <laughs> All right. So instead, I'm, I did a list of phrases and phenomenon I hope disappear in in 2020. Ready? Oh, great! Mm. Red mirage. Now this is oh. one that you know. 
it's kind of come into the lexicon fairly recently, but basically what it is is that early voting or, or some, some voting suggests that there may be a wave of, you know, Republican votes when it isn't really true. Same with the blue shift. Like a lot of these this pre-balloting, they're claiming, I don't know how anybody knows, that a lot of the early voting is in favor of Biden. I don't know how anybody can know that, but that's what it's Well, like, based on registration, I know, that's I what know, it is. I mean, there's I no know. guarantee that you're going to vote there's the way no your registration no is. Guarantee. But, and there's also right. the independents, significant yeah. numbers of them. Well, right. well mostly in this state. Anyway, so Red Mirage is one that I hope disappears, along with Blue Shift. And I just <laughs> used the word, but rigged, because... I really don't believe anything is rigged. The, the elections are not rigged. And this is a, a, a term that Donald Trump threw into the system, really sowing doubt in, in people's minds. It wasn't rigged. And even with, um, you know, the uh, interference from Russia, it, it wasn't rigged, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm a little Wait a second. Worried. Can I understand this? Are these terms that you want to disappear, disappear. from yes. the lexicon? Oh, yes. good. Okay, yes. I got it. Disappear. Okay, fine. Voter fraud. Okay. Again. What voter fraud? No one has ever mm. been able to produce any any valid evidence that there is voter fraud. Same with voter suppression. Where? Exactly where? And when they say voter Everywhere. intimidation... Oh, hold no, on. No, no. Hold on. You don't think having only one drop box in the county the size of like the, practically the state of Rhode Island is you a can still voter vote. suppression effort? You can still vote. Oh, yeah. Emily, you oh, lost Emily, us on that no. one. Big time it, it, voter poll- suppression. Shutting down co- polling places all over the place. But you can still vote. Jo- you can still vote by absentee. You can, you can vote any way you want. Yes, it's but Emily. It's much it, easier. Okay. Well, we, How about calling the head that. of the Postal There's, Service to slow things yeah. down? Well, th- that ended up not happening. It, it, okay. it did happen. Well, we they took six boxes. But out I mean, of a lot of these South states are, are collecting votes six until, sorters. until November 20th, Jim. A, a bunch of them. What's That's that one of the where? problems. I think Michigan is one of them. Until November 20th. Well, Minnesota, we learned in the last 24 hours, can't yeah, count late at all. But, so. but Michigan can. can. That's because it was in violation of the state, you know, whatever. Okay, but well, Michigan, we disagree okay. on that. Right. We disagree. Super spreader. No, by, the way, though, yeah. uh, by the way, before you do super spreader, the, the term that Marjorie would like to disappear from the lexicon. You know what that term is, Which Emily? one? Donald Trump. That's yeah, the well, term she was hoping would for that. Yeah, I Thank think but this is where I'm heading. Ahead, All right, super spreader. This has okay. two meanings because it's super spreader is both a disinformation campaign and a COVID party. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I'm hoping both of those disappear. People are you know, spreading disinformation and doing stupid things like having COVID parties or even intimate dinner parties with like 12 people or something. Now they're saying that is the biggest problem. Um, yeah. Well, before you continue, can you either of you explain to me why Governor Baker increased the number of people who could eat at the same table as a, at a restaurant from know. six to ten I a few know. weeks ago? It's so arbitrary. Which is the group of ten that couldn't divide into I, two? I, 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 I just don't get it. I but go ahead. I, mean, okay, I want to know when we're all going to be able to get tested for think, free. That's but what I mean, I, I think know. They, they just have to With be you. more. You know, you just have to say use more common sense. I don't want the governor telling me how many people I can sit at a restaurant with. I, frankly. I do. I, I know you do. You, ahead, like, do. you like rules and regulations. I don't. I do. All yes, right. I do. What do I want to disappear? Boogaloo. That was a little late to this one. Yeah. The Boogaloo oh, movement. Oh, yeah. Boogaloo. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. like, is it really yeah. that? You know, I mean, and, and Proud Boys, that's another one. It's like, you know, I really believe that under a new, a different administration, uh, I mean, I, I, these people are going to be upset <laughs> in the beginning, but I don't think it's going to profligate. I really don't. Do you? You're worried. I don't know. I don't know. If you get all these people running for Congress who we've talked about this with Corey Lewandowski, who think that links to QAnon. I One mean, person. T- 
time. No, 31. One in Massachusetts. Yeah, Yeah, Massachusetts. only one is actually maybe getting in, but... Well, the woman well, from they, the South, right. Well, yeah. some of them have backed off because they realize no one believes that Tom Hanks is a cannibal. Yeah. I mean, really. We all saw him well, we on that plane on the Hudson, the way. We on the Hudson not, yes. River. Do you think Tom Hanks, America's like grown-up Boy Scout? <laughs> By the what? way, just one notion on this. We've said this before, but not recently, and it's important. You know, when people sometimes, as we tend to do, laugh at some of these conspiracy things, as you've heard us say, Emily, Marjorie and I and a bunch of our team went to Comet Ping Pong Pizza no, in Washington, which is where the, the guy inspired right. by Michael Flynn's son and others went because he thought there was the pedophile ring run by uh, Hillary Clinton and her campaign yeah. manager in the basement. You know, while we all laughed at it, we spoke to the general manager when we were having dinner there, and the place was packed on the night. The guy shot either one shot or two shots. I mean, he could have killed people. No, I know. I did like that Heather a few weeks Heyer ago. All those, um, Conspiracy theorists. There are a lot of yeah, people right. out there who really believe in this stuff, but yeah, they know. do. And they and but our president promotes that. I'm, I think we're going to have a. That, yes, hopefully, he does. we'll have somebody who doesn't promote it. But you know what's scary? Okay. Just as a quick aside, like these people, like Oath Keepers, um, you know this this far right anti government militia. They got cops in there. They've got former mm-hmm. military mm-hmm. people, former EMTs. I mean, these are not people that are living on the fringes. These are people. All right. That, Live back next door to you. Back to phrases and phenomena I want to disappear. Okay. Yes, please. It's China's yep. fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cancel culture. I'm with you. Well, I don't like, I'm sick of the term, but there is a legitimacy to it. I mean, to the concept. There, there is... There is that. I know. It's but, a problem. Go ahead. But I'm hoping it disappears. So you don't like the term? So the, the underlying, the issue you're I want it. Okay I want with. the phenomenon to disappear. So that's okay. what I'm saying. Okay. Crazy oh, sin phenomenon. Okay. Cancel culture. Okay. Well, some so people what do you want, cancellation, but go ahead. Five strikes and they're out? Well, Three like, strikes and they're like, out? Ten strikes? Like, like these, <laughs> this union today was taking on um, the Pioneer Institute in an op-ed that Charlie Chippio, they're calling for his resignation because he was making some... Uh, reference to George Floyd, and they're calling it racist. And it's like, I mean, my, my God, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't be, you can't write something and be a white guy and without being. I don't know. It's yeah. and Charlie Chipio okay, is, is 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 our transportation guy. He's a genius on right, all right. transportation. He's issues one of them. Union issues and pension and issues. And he's also a good writer. He's a very good writer. Where's your mask? Go ahead, Emily. Hoping that disappears because people will just do it. You know, when we're yelling at people. Have you been in situations where people are yelling across the street, hey, where's your mask? It's like, I don't want necessarily a mandate, but I definitely want people to be more mindful of this. Well, I'm sorry. When you have seven months and it's clear <laughs> that, that voluntarily mind, voluntary mindfulness is not enough, you have two alternatives. But Give that's, up again, or- to do with the administration. Most people would do it if there was just a common sense approach to this. It didn't was Emily. There is a mask mandate in Massachusetts, and when you see people not wearing it, it's because there's no consequence. That's because our president violating the mandate thinks it's it's okay. I don't think in Massachusetts it is. But go ahead next. All right. Um. It's a little more contentious than I expected. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, I mean, (laughs) believe it or not, I sort of want the term mainstream media. To disappear because it's it's a pejorative. I'm, I'm fine with it. It's like you know yeah, what? I, there is no. It's not a monolith like any other form of media anymore. And it used to be very specific, you know, like the three networks and the three main mm-hmm. team. But it's not anymore. Now it's like it's this general application, and it's a pejorative. 
It is a pejorative. Yeah. Fox is now mainstream media. Obviously. Exactly. Exactly. I suppose Rush okay, Limbaugh is mainstream How about media. It is what numbers. it is. Which is one oh, of the it is dumbest. drives me out of my mind. And, and it, don't you say that? Jim? And that's been renewed that. because do, of yes, that actually. stupid thing that, that Trump said. <laughs> I do. All right. Well, <laughs> this is going over like a lead balloon. All right, but finally, <laughs> it's not a lead balloon. I like it's a balloon. Phrases and phenomena. I hope disappear. <laughs> Make America great again. America is great. Well, America is great. Ooh. It has always been great, and we don't need some, you know, what telling us to make it great again because it always was. Even though so it's, it's been a struggle. Let, let me ask you. Let me ask you something yes. before you go. I mean, no, you've been going to resurrect that quiz. You've been you've been <laughs> in po- politics for a long time. I mean, have you ever seen anything like the agita of this com- upcoming race? I mean, people are really worked up into a frenzy. No, isn't everybody worried? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it just was so. I mean, just hearken for the days. We're okay. I mean, everybody John said Kerry was running every against four George years. Bush. Somebody says, "Oh, this is the most important election of our lifetime." I yeah. have to say, nothing compares to this. Nothing compares nothing. to this. No. We should have a theme song. No, nothing. We should sing a few compares. bars. Isn't that Sinead O'Connor? I think it's Sinead, Sinead O'Connor. O'Connor. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how Sinead she's doing O'Connor. these days. Nothing. Compa- I think YouTube okay. did a cover as well. I mean, YouTube. What are you not doing YouTube. tonight, Emily Rooney? All right. Um, what are you doing? We're doing a totally election uh, theme story, and and a lot of it I has to do with YouTube. All right. With election itself, the election night about um, being really careful about the election tally. You know, it used to be, Mm -hmm. you know, you start counting the votes with certain um, counties and that kind of thing coming in. It's not going to work that way anymore, especially with, you know, some states are going to pre-count the the mail-in ballots. Some some aren't. They're starting from zero on that night and with no order. It's ridiculous. So every state is completely different. So being really mindful of the tally. And then being really mindful, secondly, Adam is doing a piece about just the consequences of coverage that night, like switching to um, victory speeches before any victory has been announced or switching to violent protests, switching to uh, any kind of like a social media feed on some kind of phenomenon. So all the kinds of things that and and a lot of these, to their credit, a lot of networks have in advance announced kind of like how they're going to proceed on their decision desks. But just in terms of how you react to the breaking news of the night, that's going to be a little trickier. You know, are, do, you, do we know um, what the networks are going to do? Are they going to stay on until 4 o'clock in the morning or what? Well, my guess is the cables will. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think, think it's so going to be late. Yeah. 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 What about you guys? Okay. Are you going to stick with be- it? Uh, Jim's uh, going to be up until 4 I'm o'clock actually- in the morning. He's going to let me know how it goes. <laughs> You know, uh, I just want to be clear for the record here. Did yes. I hear you right, Marjorie? You were talking the group that Bono leads. Yeah. You called YouTube. Is that I called them YouTube. I missed that. I called YouTube. YouTube. Yes, she called them YouTube. I just wanted Is to clarify YouTube. that. I'm making notes YouTube. of uh, yeah. not YouTube. Well, what did they have to do with Sinead <laughs> well, O'Connor? I don't know. Because they did a cover. Well, actually, I saw oh, Sinead did, O'Connor in an YouTube interview a, a couple of months ago. Oh, they did it yeah. of that nothing compares. Yes, oh. it was very no. good. No, oh, they did. Or did Sinead do a so. cover of YouTube? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like uh, this YouTube. Is, there she goes this again. She did a cover of Prince. Thank you. All right, Jim. What was Emily, the most number of electoral What's the most number of electoral uh, votes Massachusetts ever had? I, I no would idea. say 14. 18. See? This is rigged, that Marjorie. Would, no. I was gonna, is that true? Yeah, we had 18. And I was going to ask Marjorie now? questions like, I wouldn't have known. What's the fewest number of, of electorals a state can possibly have? Good, Marjorie. Two? Two? No. Three. Three. One. 
three. No, you got to have two senators. Oh, Jesus. And one congressman. Yeah. Okay, good thing you didn't do it because I would have screwed that up, too. <laughs> okay. All right, never mind. <laughs> Unfortunately, Back to the drawing board. Well, 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 thank you guys. It'll it. be after election next What is the fewest here, number? So. What is the fewest number? Three. Three. Okay. Three. Three. One congressperson, two, two, two senators. senators. But wait a second. Don't go away for a second. So we at one point had we 16 had House members? 18. No, 16 members 16 of the House. 16 members of the House, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. That is amazing. You know the one that me. was really amazing was um, Arizona. Because I used to play this game. One of the, I got obsessed by the electorates. Um, we used to play this game called Landslide, which was all about you know getting the electorate. So we memorized every single. That was back in the 70s. But Arizona had four then. They, they, they have 11 I mean, that's amazing. Wasn't the, Maricopa the County one of the fastest growing counties in America? California yeah. has maintained the same for about, you know, four How decades. Many? Yeah. I think How they're many? like at 55, but they've always been at 54, 55, yeah. 56, you know. Texas has... You know what we're going to do next rush. Friday when Emily's on? We're going to read every state and the number of electoral votes they have. No, you're going to read Emily. the state and I'm going to tell you the number. All right. Okay. I love that. It's a beautiful I'm thing. Uh, good to talk to you next week. I okay. thought I was going to give you the easy ones. No, Goodbye. I don't think so. Bye. Thank right. you. Up, uh, Emily Rooney joins us every week, and she's on, of course, tonight, 7 o'clock, WGBH at 2 o'clock for Beat the Press. Boy, we escaped one on that, Jim, with a quiz. Up ahead, Election Day travel guru Rick Steves says the most important trip ahead of Election Day, I should have said. Rick Steves says the most important trip you can take this year is to the ballot box. He's going to tell us about that and a bunch of great stories about his trips in Europe. He's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. It's time for another edition of Day Tripping with Rick Steves. Thank goodness. Virtual travel through our coronavirus world. He joins us every month to keep our travel dreams alive. And this afternoon, we're doing some time travel from the ancient days of Milan by way of the Last Supper to mid-17th century Amsterdam to present-day America with a trip that Steve says could be the most important one of the year, making your way to the ballot box. Rick is an author, television, and radio host, the owner of Rick Steve's Europe Tour Group. You can catch Rick Steve's Europe weeknights at 7.30 on GBH2 right here on his radio show right here as well. Travel with Rick Steve's Sunday at 4 on GBH. Hello there, Rick. Good morning, Jim and Marjorie. Nice to be with you guys. Pleasure oh, to be with you, to be too. with you. Yeah, we love talking to you, Rick. So let's start with um, the election. You write in your blog that while you talk a lot about issues, uh, you've not explicitly supported one candidate before, and now you have. So tell me who that is and why you decided to uh, voice your public support. Well, you know, I long for the days when Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and uh, liberals could respect each other and discuss. I even have a T-shirt that says Jeb Bartlett for president, and uh, he's a conservative. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just think it's important to have that dialogue. And what we've got now are is a situation that I just think is more fundamental than, than partisan politics. I just think our democratic norms are under attack when, when, when one party has decided it's going to cling to its ways, even though there's a generational demographic shift that puts it in a perpetual minority. 
And the only way that it can stay in power is to subvert these norms and depress the vote um, and, um, and uh, frankly, operate with the same playbook that autocrats and, and tyrants and fascists 100 years ago did in Europe, um, you know, discrediting the media. You know, Trump knew that in order for him to stay in power, he needed to discredit the media. That was part of, that, that set the table for running a government ruled by somebody who is not in the majority. So I'm really up in arms right now. I just think that um, our democracy is on the line. And, and I know everybody says this election is the most important of our lifetime every four years or whatever. But um, I, I just long for the days when we can have um, civilized discourse in government. I like a discourse back and forth, and we don't have it now. And if one party was going to lead us to a situation where it wasn't win-lose, but win-win when the two parties talk to each other, um, this is the time that, that I think we need to vote for Biden and we need to get our government back on track. I'm really thankful that the Democrats put up um, a relatively centrist candidate. And for Trump to, to call Biden uh, um, you know, a, a Trojan horse for all sorts of communists it's just insulting. So I'm tired of this. I want normalcy. I want, I want, I, I love a political discourse. I'm, I'm a, I'm a economic, I think I'm an economic conservative and I'm a, I'm a social uh, progressive, uh, but there's no right or wrong answer. And um, it's the same thing like uh, religion. You know, I'm, I'm a religious person, but I don't believe in fundamentalism. Fundamentalism means I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. You know, I believe I'm right, but I believe other people might be right, too. And I just want to talk and live together. You know, so, so, so in, in short, I am I am adamantly for Joe Biden. And it's not because I'm adamantly for Democrats. It's because I'm adamantly for American democracy. And that means representative democracy. And we need to look at our how do we have representative democracy right now? I live in a state in Washington where we joke that we don't have any votes at all that matter because, you know, we're, we're a state that is more progressive. We're more environmental. Um, a lot of people think Seattle is a, a hellhole right now. And I get chatter on my website that says, oh, aren't you sad you live in Seattle now? It's just overrun with all sorts of chaos and rioters. And I tell them I respect Seattle so much. I think the only other city in the country I might live in is Portland, you know, but people got to be here to understand that, I guess. By the way, if you were as uh, a politic as you should be, you would have said Portland or Boston, but we'll let that pass for another day, my friend. You know, Rick, uh, I met you in person for the first time when you were uh, traveling in uh, high-profile, relentless advocacy for uh, marijuana legalization. And the last question I asked you, I remember when I met you in, in that interview was, uh, aren't you worried about the damage this will do to your business? And I may have even quoted the infamous Michael Jordan line, Republicans wear sneakers too. Obviously, he's come around. He's contributed $100 million in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I read some of the comments on your blog. Some were not very complimentary. Do you worry about the impact on your business when your business is up and running? Or does that not matter to you? You know, I I just trust that... Yeah, I, I don't worry about the impact of my business on that. I, I mean, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot. And my staff, I have to admit, was nervous about my um, explicit and very public advocacy for drug policy reform. But I, I wouldn't embrace a law that was racist. And I wouldn't embrace a law that was based on lies and fear mongering and, and uh, uh, established by a president who was angry at hippies and black people in 1971. So he put that drug as a schedule one drug. 
Um, I wouldn't embrace that for my bottom line. It's the same thing as I had a peace flag out in front of my building uh, when we were going to war in Iraq based on what I thought was lies in a war that was going to be a big mistake and and mess up a lot of beautiful people and uh, and be very costly. I had that flag outside of my building, and I'll never forget Jim and Marjorie walking uh, across the street in my little town here in Edmonds, north of Seattle, and a man, a neighbor, said, "Uh, boy, Rick, I bet if you knew how much that flag, that peace flag was going to cost your business, you would have thought twice about putting it up. Honestly, for somebody to calculate the cost of to their business of opposing a war they didn't believe in and you know put it in another way to embrace a war that was that they believed was based on lies because it was good for good their for business, business right it didn't even occur to me that somebody could do that now i that's just decency that that's not heroic or, or saintly or anything like that that's just awake and uh, i'm thankful for my business but i think also i have a long-term approach at what's good for my business and you know, I'm voting for Biden. It's going to be very expensive for me because it's it's I'm a I'm a businessman with a lot of money, and uh, I don't I care about my investing in my community, and I, I care about investing in the future, and I, I care about the uh, fabric that weaves our society together. Right now, we are on a we are on a on a train that's taking us into becoming mindless producer consumers at the expense of all that's beautiful in life. We're defunding the the liberal arts. We're defunding social sciences and funding just working and making money so that our stock market is better. And we're a successful country. We don't need to compromise and, and, and do those kind of you know desperate actions to be wealthier and, and more materialistic. We can enjoy the beauties of our success by sliding up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, people remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think people have put in our society barbed wire halfway up Maslow's hierarchy of needs so that we mindlessly, if we're not very thoughtful about this, keep focusing on the lower rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. We can slip over that barbed wire and slide up to the top, and we can all be creative and care about each other and do things that are just like like for the, the love of life and to celebrate diversity and try something new. And, and, and that's the mark of a successful society. And uh, if we wake up, we can do that. And we can do it in a sustainable way. Our grandchildren can do it, too. By the way, I just got a text from a friend who wants to know if you're available to go to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin this weekend. <laughs> Rick, Steve, so <laughs> we're you know, talking I've, about I've, I'm oh, kind God. of on a political role, uh, Jim and Marjorie, because I've spent uh, t- 10 days in the last month uh, just totally dedicated to that um, drug policy reform crusade. We've been mm-hmm. in uh, South, South Dakota, Montana, New Jersey, and Arizona talking up um, the idea of taking the crime out of the equation when it comes to marijuana. And I've been sharing, you know, the success we've had in Washington and I think in Massachusetts and Maine, in your corner of the country also. But, uh, yeah, this is a time for people to respectfully be sharing what they want for our country because that's the beauty of a democracy Amen. and we should not abdicate that. You know, um, you write in, in the, the blog uh, entry where you talk about supporting Joe Biden that you think – in America, there's two choices that people seem to have, big, bad government, a good, small government. But point out in Europe, there is uh, a big, good government and that capitalism needs a chaperone or um, a regulation, yeah. which a lot of economists think, too. But Europe is struggling again with coronavirus. Is, did they do something wrong here? Did the good, big government fail them in, in France and Germany and other parts of the, of, uh, the European Union? 
Well, I think that uh, this virus is pretty feisty, that's for sure. And um, I, I think that, um, I, I, I don't know what, I don't really know what, um, where they fell back on that, but I do think they're having a little bit of um, lockdown fatigue. And I think they might've opened up too early. Everybody cares about everybody. And it's heartbreaking to see businesses, especially small businesses, go out. People's dreams just crushed. And uh, I'm really tuned into that now. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, the, the COVID thing is something beyond the control. I, I don't know what's going on in Europe, but it's disappointing to all of us to see that spiking again. I guess scientists told us it was going to happen in the winter. Yep, so, yep, yeah. and it is. So we're talking to Rick Steve. Rick Steve, you've got this um, 100 Travel Trails in, in uh, your new book, For the Love of Europe, and we're going to talk about several of them. I wanted to start with Berlin because there were so many fascinating things in this. Uh, talk about going to this um, this hotel that it was in East Berlin. I guess it still is in East Berlin, but before the wall fell and what it was like there. Oh, yeah. You know, when I go to Berlin right now, it is the most interesting trip because I spent a lot of time in uh, Berlin when it was communist or split and half it was communist, half it was capitalist. And of course, you'd go over the wall and as a, a young traveler, you'd go into the Warsaw Pact, you'd go into the communist world and you'd see this amazing contrast and we'd be so relatively wealthy. And I was relatively poor back then as a backpacker. <laughs> and um, I, I remember I would take a five mark. Uh, the, you know, Europe has, in the United States, we, we have a tough time handling any coin bigger than 25 cents. Right. Uh, you know, a, a, a five mark coin is like a $2 bill, you know. And um, I would take that $5 coin and then I would change it on the black market in East Berlin. And I would have enough money from that one five mark coin to take me and a friend out on a wild night on the town <laughs> in communist East Berlin. <laughs> it was so funny. And we'd go into this, uh, uh, there, there was, um, every, everything was kind of uh, uh, dark and ersatz and, uh, and, and just uh, spooky, frankly. And it was just an amazing world. And then all of a sudden freedom comes there and the fanciest hotel of DDR, of, of, of East Berlin, uh, the People's Republic of whatever, Germany, Eastern Germany, was turned into a Radisson Hotel. And now it's like, it's like almost dancing on the grave of, of communism because this Radisson Hotel is the most ostentatious place. It's got, a, it's got a, an aquarium filled with big fish that surrounds an, a see-through elevator. So when you go up the lobby into the rooms where the floors where the rooms are, you go through this whole sea of fish. And this is just surrounded by um, flashy capitalist wealth as uh, right in what was the heart of communist East Berlin. And when you go there now, it's just uh, the contrast is so exciting, but you're surrounded by all sorts of monuments to the struggles that they've had. And that's what's poignant to me. You've got Eastern Germany embracing Western capitalist ideas like with enthusiasm and you've got all these reminders of the struggles they've had to get to their freedom and to get to their unity and Marx and Lenin their their statues of Mount in the park in front of this hotel and they're nicknamed the pensioners because they just look like two old bent over guys that you know speaking of memorials though uh, Rick Steves you talked about um, the, a memorial to the first victims of Hitler these 96 Men, yeah. the German equivalent of congressmen. Tell us about them. Oh, that is so poignant to me because when you follow how Hitler took power, 
And this is what spooks me. In fact, a lot of people are watching my fascism show right now. A couple of years ago, I made a, a one-hour documentary on We saw it. It was yeah. really we talked to Rick about upsetting. It. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I really, because I'm a historian and I believe that history is speaking to us right now. And of course, you know, our president is, is not nothing like Hitler or anything like that. But there are these fundamentals of how do you derail a representative democracy within the sort of general rules of that democracy. How do you come in and do that? And it's a playbook. And Mussolini and Hitler read that playbook. And so are all of the autocrats, it seems like, in around Europe right now, Poland, Hungary, Turkey, that are doing very similar things. And we can just learn from history. And, uh, you know, that's just uh, um, something that I think we should really be doing. But... Um, you know, in, in, in Germany, they've learned, and there's this monument out, front, out in front of their um, Reichstag, their parliament building. And when Hitler took power, they had discussion in their parliament. And there was a, a handful of what would be, let's think of the, if one party had a super majority in our country, you know, mm -hmm. owned every branch of government and did it with two thirds of the uh, uh, electors. Uh, and then you had a vote and, and one third was kind of sheepishly raising their hands and st stepping up for their values. What Hitler did was he just arrested them and uh, yeah. everybody had to go to work. Everybody had to go to parliament wearing the same sort of um, um, uniform that, that his fascists wore. And it was the only option. And if you were a Mitt Romney in that party, you were in a concentration camp the next day. And yeah. it just it gives me the chills that Jeff Flake and Mitt Romney and these guys are the pale versions of these guys that were not enthusiastic enough about the new dictator. And, of course, they just get banished politically in our society. Thank God they don't get sent to a concentration camp. But you'd put it in high contrast and you learn from history. Um, Hitler actually sent them to concentration So the very first um, uh, inmates at a concentration camp were people like these political prisoners. And you have these granite or these slate slabs. There's, uh, I forget how many, you, you just said how many, um, but they're, each one has 96. the name of 96, yeah. 96. 96 Mitt Romneys. Yeah. And, and, it, and each, 96 Joe Bidens, 96 whoever disagreed with the dominant uh, leader with their name the day they went to the concentration camp and the day they died. And after that, the government in Germany was in lockstep. One power, one leader. You know, like party platform? Imagine that. There was yeah. no party platform. It's just whatever the Fuhrer wants. I mean, it's chilling to think of what's going on politically. Uh, again, and it's not saying everybody's going to concentration. I'm not saying it's, it's Hitler or anything like that. But this is democracy on the line, and Germany has suffered through that. And when you go to Berlin, you have all of these monuments that are just so thoughtful and a fundamental kind of common denominator is you don't want a, a, a thoughtless, a dumbed-down electorate. Germany subsidizes history. It, yeah. you know, in the old days, teachers conveniently ran out of class time by 1930 because it was just too heartachey to teach uh, the Holocaust and, and fascism in German high schools. Now they dictate an entire year is devoted to Hitler and the Holocaust, and it starts with the rise of Hitler around 19, well, World War I. So there's no way that teachers can dance around this. Every student in Germany goes to a concentration camp. That's their standard operating procedure now because they know, regardless of your politics, you could be right or left, you know, uh, that a society has to learn from its history. And I'm just kind of inspired by that. Now, you know, Germany really is the spearhead European uh, Union uh, 
you know, pro projects and policies because it's such a dominant and uh, successful economy. They've got a Erasmus program where they actually fund, even in hard times, they, they protect the funding for this. Teachers and students are funded to live and work and study in other countries within the EU so they can all better understand each other. That's a, a move, a top-down governmental move paid for by taxpayers, at, not at the advantage, to the advantage of any party, for people not to be siloed and divided like we are here in the United States. We're doing just the opposite. We're all going to our corners and getting into our, our you know, echo chambers so we just talk to people and read news that agree with us. In Europe, they pay people to go to other countries so they can be more broad-minded and, and be more respectful to the thought that there's different ways to do this and we have to live together. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me, and it's, we can learn from it. I, I like to think of the social contract, and I did a post about that recently on my Facebook page, and I got lots of good comments on it. But there's Locke and there's Rousseau. You know, you have to have a social contract. Uh, and another, this is kind of from the Enlightenment, but uh, Thomas Hobbes said if you don't have a, solid, a social contract, life for everybody is going to be, he said, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. A social contract is realizing that if you live together, you've got to give up something. It, it, it's kind of the opposite of don't tread on me right. uh, that, that we embrace. And I look at what is the difference between Europe and the United States in a social outlook point of view. And I think it is we embrace the lock notion. And even I embrace, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I embrace the don't tread on me notion more than a European would, because we're inclined to have that, you know, give me elbow room, get the government off my back, I want right. to do my own thing. I would only run my business here in the United States. I'd hate to run my business in Europe, because there's, there's too many, um, you know, um, you're, you're too straightjacketed in a lot of ways. Um, but in Europe, they're more tuned into the Rousseau notion, which is you got to give up uh, uh, some of your freedoms in order for everybody to live peaceably together. And Europe has a denser population and a longer history, and it's just more Rousseau style. So Europe to the United States, it's like Locke and Rousseau. Within the United States, we, with this divide that we've got that is so tragic, you have the same kind of thing, Locke and Rousseau, when it comes to the social contract. Give up more to work together and live together Thomas Jefferson was really into Rousseau. He believed a society has to give up more to live together. And uh, Locke, on the other hand, would have that don't tread on me, the cowboys of the Old West, get the government off my back, lower taxes, less regulation. That's got Locke written all over it. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, we, talking about current events with you, Rick Steves, is not nearly as stress-producing as every other conversation we have. And, <laughs> and, and by the way, if you're saying to yourself, I could use a little more of this, what Marjorie asked Rick about was one of his daily doses of Europe on his blog. Yeah, and their wonderful. From this great book, The Love of Europe. We're short on time, and one of the things I loved is late September through October in your blog, you're, you're focusing on a lot of art. Uh, Rembrandt's Night Watch, Amsterdam, uh, uh, Grunewald, if that's how you pronounce his name, oh, yeah. uh, the mm. older piece. And the Last Supper in Milan, and people should read those. But I, yeah, I because about one, you learn so much. You really do. But <laughs> I, I want to mention one thing in particular: is I was in Milan and I saw a lot of things, but I did not have the opportunity to uh, put my foot on and crush the testicles of a bull, <laughs> which oh. is something I feel like I really missed. In a minute, can you tell us what that is for those of us who missed out, Rick Steves? 
in the 1870s, Italy was uniting and they were celebrating uh, what they, filling its oats and they built this first great mall. It was a gallery, the Victor Emmanuel Gallery, named after the first king of Italy. And it celebrates all of the different states of Italy. They said when they finally created Italy, we've created Italy, now we have to create Italians because people were, you know, they have this campanilismo. Campanilismo in Italy is the love of the sound of their own church bell. Every Italian was more local to its region, its, its, its state, its city than it was to Italy. So they would celebrate all the different parts of Italy. And uh, each of the states of Italy has its own symbol. And uh, uh, there's a bull on the, in the pavement there in that thing that is celebrating, uh, surrounded by uh, the regalia and the coats of arms and the, and, the, and the signs of all the states of Italy. And when people come to the bull, just traditionally, you step on the bull's testicles for good luck. <laughs> and uh, I like to just get a nice Campari. Campari was first served mm-hmm. right there at that mall. I, I sit there and I drink my Campari and I watch People come by, and, and it's just delightful. They step on that ball, and then uh, a couple of uh, high school kids told me, and if you give it a spin, it's even better luck. So people step on it, and they, they do a little ballet-type twirl on the balls. Can I tell you? I could use a little testicle crushing in my life, Rick Steves. Hey, Rick. Rick, we love talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Well, nice to talk to you. And as I like to say, happy travels, even if we're all just staying home for a while. I look forward to talking to you next month. So do we. So do we. Rick joins us every month as author, television, radio host, owner of the Rick Steves Europe Tour Group. You can catch Rick Steves Europe weeknights at 7.30 on GBH2 and his radio show, Travel with Rick Steves, Sundays at 4 on GBH. Coming up, Callie Crossley joins us to talk about Trump and other things. She's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Welcome back to Boston back. Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan joining us online as she does every Friday as the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. That would be Callie Crossley. So hello to you, Callie. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hello, Callie Crossley. So Callie Crossley, I was very thrilled that I thought the two best debate questioners or moderators this year were both women, Savannah Guthrie and Kirsten Welker. And Kirsten Welker, who is at NBC and is a correspondent there and a black woman, Asked the question about the talk. What'd you make of it? Well, I, you know, she's, uh, I think it's Kristen, by the way, but she's been um, excellent Kristen, I'm sorry. Um, all along. This is, you know, she covers the, the politics and the candidates and the president. And uh, I wouldn't have wanted to be her for anybody because she was coming after all that controversy and the cancellation of the second one. So she, I think, uh, knew that her questions had to, and her comp- the way she comported herself, which was never going to be any question, was going to have to be extra special. And um, what I uh, made note of is that Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post also made note of is that when she asked her question about racial experiences in the United States, race relations, racial reckoning, there's been all variations of that subject. She really cast it in terms of the talk that uh, uh, folks of color, that parents of color I have to ask, uh, have to have with their children, which is the conversation about what you do if you are um, accosted by an officer or how you should comport yourself and what are those safety measures you should always have in mind um, to try to get home alive. 
And um, that's not something that, as most white parents will say, they've ever had to consider. And yet this is, you know, central to uh, in a lot of homes. And of course, it was in her home because she's black. And I just thought, wow, um, that's a great uh, innovative way to ask the question. Margaret Sullivan pointed out, this is what we mean by the importance of diversity in newsrooms, because it's her lived experience. It's the way that she um, put the question, um, which really gave them both an opportunity to address this in an entirely different way. Yeah, well, you know, you hear this talk in this Washington Post piece about how too many times people in newsrooms talk about diversity, like having uh, X number of these people, X number of that people. But it's really about different perspectives on the world. If you're black, right. if you're a woman, if you're Asian, if you're if you're gay, I mean, obviously you see the world in, very differently. And, and uh, well, you've had lived, different lived experiences. Exactly. And so she's, yeah. She's able to. Br- she was able to bring that in that moment. While, you know, in the context of, of this uh, very important discussion. Okay. Well, also, it told, said a huge amount about the answers, by the way. Yes. I mean, well, not only yeah. did she do it for the reasons you both described, in many ways, far more than pointed, detailed questions, which are fine and necessary in some circumstances, open-ended questions like this, which force you to think rather than just give some sort of pap answer, I thought said as much about the differences between the two men as practically anything could. I thought it was really... And Which is, really, by the way... By the way, I, I was... I mean, I knew what she did. Yeah. What's that? No, I was going to say, by the way, that's what that's what uh, no, go ahead. people watching want to see. You know, t- you know show, get, ask a question that will allow me to see past the sort of pat answers that uh, candidates might I agree. Uh, want to offer. So Kelly Crossy, I just read this. I agree. She was great. Mm-hmm. She she was great. Um, and I, I and I thought Savannah Guthrie was really good too. Two women, yeah. as I said, as yes. I started this whole I thing. She was too. So so I just finished reading this story about this Patriot Front white supremacist group mm. who wants to get immigrants, blacks, and Jews out of the country. I I, I had forgotten that they were here in Boston in February 2019, right. misbehaving, and they vandalized um, synagogues. I mean. This is a scary bunch. Tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these groups are being mushed together under the umbrella of uh, white supremacy groups, which they all are, but they are, as this article makes clear, quite different in their approaches. Um, and for these, this group, this Patriot Front, they're not that political. They're like, really don't care who's in the office. They just believe that, you know, they're supposed to be here and through violent activity, if necessary, which they think is going to be necessary, they need to, you know, take back or grab hold of however they however they position it, you know, what they think are the bad influences. So in some of these messages, some of these um, uh, social media messages that the leader posted, you know, he's referring to Jews and immigrants and Muslims, misspelled, by the way, um, (laughs) just as, you know, people who should not be here. And they say that they have a categorical rejection of the notion of equality, the categorical rejection of universal democracy. Explicit in-group preference is their whole reason for being. So that, you know, you know, it's one thing to hold those views. It's quite another to decide that you need to impose them on everybody else and to be equipped with uh, guns and other 
militia equipment to do so. So it's really it's weird. And they are they really pride themselves as opposed to a lot, we've had a lot of conversation about Proud Boys. The Proud Boys like uh, apparently public recognition and discussion where these people want to be underground and just do their business out of sight should it you know, as it is. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which everybody knows, tracks these groups, says it's among the most prolific spreaders of quote-unquote white power propaganda in the United States. They've put up flyers in over a thousand places around the country in 2020 alone. And they're pretty young. They're only three years old. So, and young, by the way, the 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 people who are Mostly members are more men than women. I don't think there are a lot of women. In fact, they they seem to feel like girlfriends are a distraction for this group. So um, they're mostly men. Lucky for the girlfriends. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Um, So it's really scary. It's it's very very scary. It says they. You know what I take away from this? uh, I'm sorry. You go ahead, Marjorie. Mm -hmm. I have a sound problem here. You talk. Okay, they just said that they wear uniforms of bomber jackets, face covering, beige cockies. They mandate weight loss and intense workouts and regularly practice hand-to-hand combat and revere Hitler and Mussolini. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Sounds good. And they're going to be here post-Trump, which I think is the most important part of the story. For those who were saying are a lot of the things that we associate, at least in time, with Trump's presidency, should he not win next week? Will these things disappear with him? Not that he will disappear, but disappear as president should he lose. I think the story, my main takeaway is uh, this is here to stay at least for a decent period of time. And if he has a if he loses, uh, this is another huge burden on President elect Biden to try to deal with these groups who I think in many ways, even though, as you say, they're not so much allied with Trump is uh, uh, what does he do when you would assume that many of them will be emboldened by the fact that this uh, this election was, quote, rigged and stolen away from uh, the guy who encouraged these kinds of organizations, Donald Trump. So we'll and, see. and to see to me, what's scary, scary, scary is how young they are. These yeah. are people, they say, born in the late 90s or early uh, thousands. And, you know, you think to yourself, at least, I mean, it's, it was never, you know, totally across the board. But these are people who grew up in places you just, unless you are very rural, where there's a mix of people, a mix of, and -hmm. yet they've come away with this. And it's, that to me is frightening. So Kelly Crossley, another frightening tale, and I can't believe this poor woman endured this with her family for as as many years as she did, is the story about uh, Jennifer McLegan, uh, this nurse, who a uh, black woman who moves to a place called Valley Stream on Long Island. What happened? She began to be har- harassed uh, almost instantly. And she initially couldn't figure out what, what, who it was, but then figured out it was her neighbors. Um, this is a suburb of about 37,000 res- 37, residents, and 27% of them are black. So it's not like, you know, um, it's a small group, but there are other black folks there. So the neighbors were throwing feces and dead squirrels in her yard. On a consist- yeah, I mean, a really consistent basis. And then she kept hearing what sounded like shooting. And the guy was shooting pellets into her backyard so frequently that she was afraid to be in her own backyard with her daughter. So she complained to the police, as you would. And they said, eh, well, you know, you, 
he didn't really do anything. We can't prove that you you had any real harm yet because, you know, I guess she was still standing up. And um, so she was desperate. She took and figured out that she was going to have to at least try to have somebody believe her. So she gained some national attention after she hung up a handwritten sign uh, on the front and she detailed everything. She said, my name is Jennifer. I'm a single mom. This is my daughter. Uh, they've said I can be erased, which was part of a note that they threw on her lawn. Um, uh, I live in fear for my life at my home. Um, I have been I've been regularly racially profiled. And she said, you'll hear prayers coming from my home. That's what she wrote on the note. I apologize for the noise. And along with that, she had put in some equipment, some video equipment to record so she could get some evidence of mm-hmm. these people doing it. And. She also posted that home surveillance video on social media. And after that, then the uh, the cops had a little bit more interest, and she also is now represented by civil rights lawyer Benjamin Crump, who rightly said, this is the kind of stuff you read about in the 50s and 60s, but really, this should not be happening in 2020. Um, let's make clear that her other neighbors, some other people, uh, put together a hashtag stand with Jennifer motivated volunteers to stand guard outside of her home for months. But I mean, really, you're just trying to live your life and this is what it takes. And finally, yeah. uh, two of the neighbors were charged with harassing her. But a lot of people are questioning why it took so long. And she believes it was because she was black. And um, she's just grateful that uh, the racial reckoning um, in the wake of George Floyd's death really open open the eyes of a number of people that she said maybe might not have been as open to listening to me about what was happening. She said also that when she kept calling the police because she was living in fear yeah, here and this yeah, guy shooting this gun, they told her to stop calling nine one one and just try to get along with the neighbors. Yeah. I mean that was I, you know, I hope there's some reckoning at this police department after this. I hope so, too. I mean, at some point you have to understand what's really dangerous and what, you know, I'm certain that they deal with a lot of neighbor to neighbor kind of issues. But if somebody is shooting pellets uh, in your yard on a consistent basis and leaving feces and dead squirrels, yeah. I just don't know how that doesn't add up to harassment. <laughs> help me I'd understand. say feces and dead squirrels are generally the line crosser for me, too. <laughs> yeah. You know what's interesting about this story, by the way? It's always like a second tier Benjamin Crump is involved yeah. in so many unbelievably important moments and, and in this country. It is incredible. And it's because we are focused, understandably, on the facts that got us there that often he's sort of backbenched. But he is really in the middle of a lot of things that really matter to this country in these times of an alleged I give him a lot of credit because that has got to be some emotionally debilitating work. I just, I mean. I'm with you. mm -hmm. So, Kelly, we always try to include a food thing because (laughs) there's got to be something good in this world these days. I don't know if this is a good or bad. There's a story that uh, Trader Joe's has weathered the pandemic better than Whole Foods. What's what's the thesis? Well, this is interesting. This is a uh, analysis group named Placer.ai, which I guess is artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And um, they looked at um, not just Trader Joe and Whole Foods, but also other grocery stores and found that the smallest drop in business, in other words, the places that people continue to go to mostly, are your local grocery stores like your 
you know, stop and shop in our area or your Kroger or your Albertsons and, and other areas. But when they went to these other chains, uh, first uh, Trader Joe's dipped, as did Whole Foods. But for whatever reason, Trader Joe's managed to recover during the summer. And by September, which is just, you know, a month ago, it was about the same. They have the same decrease as as regional chains, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that everybody's going to, which is still, you know, that's that is something to be noted. But it's nothing like Whole Foods. Apparently, they are about 25 percent less uh, their September 2020 sales than they were in in 2019, which is a significant uh, loss. Now, some of that has to do with culture, it seems that. People say Whole Foods is too crowded with all these prime customers. It's not, you know, uh, that was when they bought Amazon Prime or Amazon Prime bought them. And that um, in Trader Joe's, they do pace out how many people are in the store, but Whole Foods does that too. And it just feels a little bit more intimate. And so people prefer that experience. If you're going to go to a store outside of your regional store, that's what they prefer. It's sort of the Trader Joe's is the store of the people, and and Whole Foods is the store of the effete, the elite. Is that no? I think it's like uh, in terms of culture, Trader Joe's is the store of the intimate, intimate shopping oh, experience. Okay. Uh, whereas Whole Foods, which is not that much bigger, and you know many of the ones I've gone to, feels because it's so now crowded with you know the Instacart people, the Amazon Prime people. You know that it just feels like it's. Um, a little harder to navigate. And so if people have a choice, they're choosing first their regional change, their local change. And then if they wanted some extra, they if then they have a choice between Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, they're going to Trader Joe's. By the so way, on a, I'm sorry, a mm-hmm. huge breaking news piece courtesy of Chelsea. Uh-huh. She says that the hot bar at the Symphony Whole Foods, which is a tiny little Whole Foods, oh unfortunately, God. is back. What? But you have to tell Jim. a worker what you want, and he or she will select it and pack it for you. That's good enough for me, I'll tell you. Well, but do they that leave is, it out there so that underneath the shield? They must not. I, they must be I don't, doing You have to speak else. to Chelsea, but she's yeah. the reporter from the scene. Wow. We'll get more on this next week. Huge yeah, breaking news right is. here on Boston Public Radio. What are you doing on Sunday? <laughs> Uh, Callie, it's the first time we all got excited, the whole show here. <laughs> Go ahead. Go, um, uh, what, are we, uh, what are we doing on Sunday? Um, I'm talking to a couple of people who've had their Black Lives Matter signs vandalized and worse. Um, and they were surprised at the intensity of the vandalism and the negative response they got and are determined they will not move those signs. They keep putting them back. And they want to really talk about what it says about you know, what's happening now, what it says about some of the support they've gotten from neighbors and some of the support they have not gotten from neighbors and what it says. Um, And also in that same conversation, the head of the Arlington Human Rights Commission is talking about trying to deal with it on a community-wide basis of that kind of vandalism and and what, how they're responding in that way. And secondarily, we're, it's one of our uh, book shows, uh, book segments, and we're talking to a guy who's looked at Theodore Roosevelt's legacy of preservation of public lands. Now, why this matters now is because the Trump administration has attempted and been successful in limiting or um, trimming back some of the public lands that Teddy Roosevelt worked so hard to put aside. Many important parks and and monuments that you would all know. And that has a linkage to climate change, um, what's going on there. So it's a real interesting story about... uh, 
the, the legacy of Teddy Roosevelt, which I think I vaguely knew, but didn't really understand how important he was in um, preserving all of these spots that we all enjoy. I don't want to hey, tell Kevin. you what to do, but I would add a quick segment on the hot bar being open at Symphony <laughs> Whole Foods. And Chelsea is now telling us that the person who helps you is wearing PPE. It's roped off. And huh. most importantly, there are Brussels sprouts. I'll oh, say no more. Oh, Thank you, I Chelsea, our investigative God. reporter. They're roasted, probably. Oh, roasted. <laughs> hey, uh, Callie, okay, have a good weekend. Set, we'll yes. listen Sunday night. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Uh, Callie Crossy is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossy. It is, as Jim said, Sunday nights right here on 89.7 at 6 o'clock. You can subscribe to her Under the Radar podcast on iTunes. Follow her on Twitter at Callie Crossley. Up next, I guess this is a special favor to me. We're taking is, your actually. calls. Asking you how to offset your election anxiety or perhaps hysteria in some cases. For every four hours of TV news, do you watch two hours of The West Wing? Listen to 89.7 GBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. With Marjorie at near peak anxiety ahead of the election, we are staging an intervention of sorts. Now, Marjorie's going to think this is made up, this next part. It is not. Juliet Kayyem is actually getting email from listeners suggesting that she move in with Marjorie to get her through the weekend (laughs) and help her pace the rage. Of course, that would violate all the coronavirus (laughs) bubble rules. So instead of the Kayyem regimen, we're asking you for some counter-programming advice. What are you doing to offset the unease of this moment? And here's what I mean. It's 30 minutes in front of, I don't know, the Panda Cam doing it for you. Are you watching slow TV? Is that 10-hour train ride to the Norwegian Arctic Circle what's getting you through these fretful times? The number is 877-301-8970. Or are you as bad as Marjorie? Is a continuous feed of podcast, TV news, and latest polls your only sustenance? 877-301-8970. I'm serious. I mean, you are a glutton. You have decided basically... If uh, you're miserable about what's going on, get more miserable. Was that a fair description of how you're spending your well, I do, free time? I, I do try to take. I do try to take a break. I try not to be up all night and get up first thing in the morning to tune on. You know, flip among uh, CNN, NBC, and uh, and Fox News. I, I try to take a break and listen to podcasts about the election. That's what I do, Jim. If I oh, well, that's the, the TV. That, how is that any different? <laughs> and that's my point. You immerse you. You and I do. By the way, I used to. What follow do you do, Jim? This particular Twitter account, but now you're going to make fun of me, but it is true. I follow yeah. at baby animals and it's, they're these oh. incredible. And by the way, I've always followed it. So I don't want to be deceptive and say this is just a coronavirus or yeah. a, an election season thing. But I look at it much more now because you know what it is. I know this is probably obvious to shrinks or therapists who are listening. If you mm-hmm. take a break in the agony, you actually feel a little bit better you and you might want to try you it. Do. Kind of. And I want to alert people to a piece Matthew Bernstein did for the Globe today. He's giving advice on playlist playlist to oh, get yeah, you yeah, through election it, day and night. So this yeah. is for election day. He has um, uh, "Morning Has Broken" by Cat Stevens, or on the other hand, here comes that sinking feeling by the Eurythmics, <laughs> or the waiting by Tom Petty. Or, or It Ain't Over Until It's Over by Lenny Kravitz. I mean, he's got a lot of clever songs. Is it going to be um, A Morning is Broken 
or crawling from the wreckage, Jim. We, we just don't know. Well, we know. So there you go. I think his use of Islam now, actually, Cat Stevens. But I guess he was Cat Stevens at the time of the uh, morning's broken. So we want to know, are you, if you have advice for how Marjorie can sort of get a break in the negative well, it's action. it's not Marjorie. I'm what not the only one that's anxious. As 70% I was saying, of if us you have anxious, advice Jim. for Marjorie uh, to get a break in the action, <laughs> feel free to call. She doesn't want it to be all about her, but it is. And if you're like her and you're just submerging yourself in negative, horrible, disastrous news, then be candid and say she is not alone. Linda in Boston, <laughs> you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi, guys. Um, Hi. Okay, so I coined a word, gosh, about it? four years ago, um, a little less than four years ago, because I was so repulsed by what I was seeing in this mm-hmm. person. Um, yeah. And so I coined a mashup of two words, and whenever I hear anything disgusting, which is constantly, I scream out my favorite word. It's a mashup of two words. The two words are Trump. And because the spirit and soul of this person is so ugly, that's the other word. I call them truglies. Oh, I like that. (laughs) And what does that do for you? What does that do for you, Linda? It just makes me feel better to have a word that describes what I'm hearing and I'm repulsed and nauseated. It's beautiful. And so it it refers to him his ugly spirit and soul mm-hmm. and arrogance and nastiness and the, and the people, the sycophants like Kellyanne Conway who follow him yeah. in the cult. These mm-hmm. are the Truglies. These are the Truglies. Okay, so, so that I don't have to spend time calling you back this weekend if I'm giving advice to Marjorie, do you yell it out or you just say it? How do you, how do, you do it? All of the above. All, whatever okay. is called for. Whatever is called Excellent. for, depending on what I'm witnessing, hearing, seeing, disgusted by. Uh, Linda, thank you for... We got it. Fabulous advice. Excellent. Marjorie, take notes during this discussion. I'm I'm, I'm writing all this down. 301-8970. You're reading the email? I can't tell. What are you doing? Yeah, a lot of people have been been watching the West Wing for the last month. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dan says his plan for election is to stick with the West Wing while monitoring results on Twitter and drinking heavily. (laughs) So there you go. You know what I watched last night, which is not exactly a respite. I watched the first episode of The Undoing. The Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant. Oh, thing. how is it? It is fabulous. It's great. Netflix really or HBO? Oh, no, it's uh, HBO. So the unfortunate thing is you can't watch all of them in one weekend. But that's well, a I real like problem, that. I like really having to wait like from week to week. I don't, I don't you do? Like it is it as good as Big Little Lies? Her li- latest. It's uh, sort of like Big Little. It's funny you say that. I said it's like Big Little Lies on the East Coast. That's sort of how I, as opposed to uh, Monterey or wherever they were before. In any case, we're getting off subject. At least I am. We are looking. We're doing an intervention for uh, Marjorie, even though she doesn't like us saying that. What are the if fun, good, non-dystopic, uh, if that's a word, things that you're engaging in to break the monotony of the, the bad news? Leah and Cranston, hi. 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 Sorry. <laughs> so you're on. I, uh, I have sort of a recipe, a recipe that seems to be working for me. I hear a lot about West Wing, but I'm actually watching Madam Secretary. And there's oh. six seasons. Oh, it's delightful. You'll love it. Mm-hmm. Kaya Leone just shines as the most She's measured good. Yeah. leader you've ever seen. She's so good. And you, when you do this, it's very important. Now, you have to listen because it's a little perverse, but they vetted me, so it's not terrifying. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nachos with hollandaise on them. Oof. You just take a pie Ooh. plate. You put your chips, your tortilla chips, in yeah. the pie plate, and you take yeah. a pan of hollandaise, and you drizzle those bad boys, and you enjoy. That's what you Ooh. need. It will help you, I assure you. 
Well, can I say, Leah, I want to, even though I'd never heard great. of that before, the reason it's great is it either helps you, as you say, or you're going to die sooner either. So you won't be in agony for that long. So either way, it's, it's a winner. Wow. Leah, thank you for your butter. suggestion. By the way, do you know what? Enjoy. Leah, Thank thanks. You. I actually do more cooking. I've told you this in part because we're home more. Yes. But I also, it, it, it is, it is a, t- I really focus and concentrate when I'm chopping things. You know, I've said this to you for years. Oh, mindful and, chopping? Well, I don't, maybe, it, I mean, maybe, I guess. I hadn't thought of it that way. And it really yeah, takes you away from all the other craps. You should, I know you're not a huge fan of cooking. Maybe you can chop some of those prunes on your prune chicken. Do they hold prunes or are they <laughs> Well, they do talk through? about mindfulness helping with anxiety, Jim. You know, yeah, go, is on, that what I'm... go on a mindful walk and look carefully. Like when you take your dog for a walk, you could you can be do a mindful dog walk. But is it, if me chopping vegetables and getting totally into it, and I do, totally yes, into that's what I'm mindful. doing. Is that mindful? It is? Yes, mindfulness oh, with your vegetables. Okay. Yeah, Fabulous. so there you go. That's pretty Where do you want to go next? Uh, let's go to John from Gardner. Hi, John. Hey, John. How are you? Good afternoon, kids. I am well. I am well. Marjorie. Good. Yes. Yeah. Four days. Four days, Marjorie. Oh, my God. Four days. Um, I know. You said, you said last week you were a loser being up at 11 o'clock watching Brian Williams. Yep. I'll see you my loser status and raise you no life because I've been watching two one-hour news programs back-to-back every night this last <laughs> couple of weeks. Wow. On two different stations. Oh, yeah, now, which ones do you I watch? Had, I've been watching, and Jim, you know, before I say this, and anybody that takes this tip, raise your right hand and say you're going to tape Jim's show. You know okay. I tape your show all the time, Jim. Thank you. I've been watching uh, Fox, per usual, and Brett Bear. By the way, I didn't even think of this till now. He's been in the bag like half the rest of them, almost as bad as some of the rest of them, Marjorie, lately, in my opinion. But anyway, and then Shepard Smith at 7 o'clock. Oh, Shepard's oh, on a new Smith, station, right. he quit. On yeah, he's on CNBC, yeah. and CNBC. he's doing what he loves to do. He's just giving the news straight. Okay, John. Anyway, I, I, no, 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 no. I Wait a second. Golf. No, John. Before you Sorry. continue, you say Sorry. you tape my show every night. Who did I have on last night? I haven't seen, watched it yet. How about the night before? Nancy Gertner. Marjorie, I don't give. <laughs> I forget that's too long ago. <laughs> nice but try, John. You're on my automatic. Uh, okay, TV okay. I What's always your point? watch when Nancy Gertner's Go ahead, John. on. Go ahead, uh, John. What's well, your? I tried uh, to say. I had golf. I've, I've golfed more this year than I have in a, in, in a long time and met some new people. It's been a lot of fun, actually. I feel guilty. I've won the, I'm the least affected person by this thing, I think, than anybody. The, uh, yeah, golf is good for social distancing. I think this will, you know what? We get like three inches of slop out here. Jeez, I they, know. They've been plowing the side roads and everything. It's terrible. What, are we looking for a weather report? Hey, John, we got to go. Have, <laughs> I enjoy think it's the weekend. It's going to melt, and I'll be back golfing. Oh, that's excellent news. You know what we're going to do, Marjorie? We almost never what are we do this. Do, Jim? Since we need suggestions, mm-hmm. we're going to try to plow through the phone calls a little more quickly than we do. So when we say hello in a second, like Jerry from the Cape, give us your suggestion in fairly rapid fire for Marjorie, and not just Marjorie, for all of us. Go ahead, Jerry from the Cape. Mm-hmm. Take it away. Go. Thank you. For, for both of you, for the, all of us, yes. please. Don't have Corey Lewandowski on the radio anymore. <laughs> oh, we're getting we're getting a lot of those. I don't. Well, we got we got a lot of complaints. He was campaign manager, uh, and we've known him a long time. But we hear what you're saying. So, is that your suggestion for how to that, cure what ails us? That would be a starter, but uh, yeah. That's <laughs> okay, fine. Different. Okay. Jerry, thank you for the uh, call. Where are we going next? That's uh, uh, we one are going to Irene and Melrose. Thank you for calling, Irene. Hi, Irene. 
Hi. I Hi. love your show. First Thanks. time Thank you. calling. Thank you. Um, I think dump Trump and ditch Mitch. Ooh. And <laughs> yeah. I also work at a um, nearby city hall, yeah. and all but about 400 um, mail-in ballots were, go- um, were in two days ago. Wow. And I also watch Leave it to Beaver for a half hour just to forget it all. My God, leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. Irene, wow. thank you. That's a blast from the past, isn't it? Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. Yeah. Remember yeah. that show, Jim? Very good, Marjorie. Yeah, I never, I I, believe it or not, I never watched it. And you as I've didn't? told you, people find it hard to believe people of my stripe. Until two weeks ago, when I watched my first episode ever of West Wing, yeah. I'm the only person in my age group with my politics who did not watch, I didn't, watch I didn't West Wing. I didn't watch it either. Oh, you didn't I'm either? with you, Jim. No. Oh. I, somehow I missed it. I Aaron missed it, Sorkin's I did, not my deal. I was very fond of the Beeve. You were? The Beeve. Yes, I was. The Will in Norwood, you him. you're next. Hi. Hi. Uh, hey. little, uh, long-time listener. Um, Thank you. Basically, my uh, what I've been doing, and it, uh, it does uh, ratchet up the anxiety a little bit sometimes, but is um, listening to podcasts and, and historians discuss what happened in authoritarian governments and fascist governments in the past. A lot of what you hear is people saying, uh, it couldn't happen here. I didn't think it would happen here. Um, listening to news these days, it seems like a lot of people are saying it could happen here. And uh, I think paradoxically, that is somewhat helpful uh, if people are kind of paying attention to what's going on. By the way, let me give you a piece of advice, not that you need it. If uh, we, uh, Rick Steves mentioned this, we were talking to him a few minutes ago, you wouldn't think it, but he's because he's such a travel guy. He's also a big history guy. And we talked to him a few months ago about an hour long documentary he made about the history of fascism in Europe. And yeah. its connections to today, and it's really consumable by non-history majors, and it's great. So, hey, Will, hey, you might Will, be right up your alley. Do you have a, po- a podcast, yeah. um, a history podcast that's your favorite? What is it? Well, I listen to um, one. Uh, he's sort of an independent journalist named Robert Evans. It's a, it's a okay. little bit uh, uh, not quite Gonzo, but you know, out there. But he does he does uh, in-depth research into. Great. Uh, sort of the online white supremacist movement. Marjorie's oh, writing it down, Will. Yeah, you made that's an impression. Soothing. The white supremacist movement. She just wrote it down. Let me tell you something. My attitude is if you want them, to lift your spirits, listen a to a podcast about white supremacy. That, <laughs> For me, at least, if I'm down in the dumps, Marjorie, a little white supremacy hour is really no. lifts me right out of it. Down and about you. I will, did. thank you. Marjorie will be following up. We have time for a really quick one, if you tell us. This Josh, is going to be Josh and Alabar. 30 seconds. Go. Hey, so, yeah, I like to uh, enjoy a slippery slope, which I have affectionately deemed a, uh, my favorite beverage in this time, and it's several uh, types of red wine mixed with ice, apricot brandy, maybe some sparkling apple cider, and then I throw on some reruns of the Adams Family. <laughs> The beef and the Adams great. family. The drink the actually Adams sounds family. quite good. Oh yeah, the drink does sound hey, good. Josh, what was that again? Thank red, you. red wine, apple cider, and what? And uh, some sparkling cider. And then Spark- you just pick your. Uh, you can. I usually get like a you know a large thing of Mondavi, Cabernet Sauvignon, and then some Celerosa sparkling Lambrusco type sweet red wine Very to round good. out the flavor. Ooh, you know how so, to live, hey, my Josh, friend. Josh, that thank you. fantastic. Those were some excellent suggestions. Those were some excellent suggestions, Jim. It's going to be a very, uh, you know, I try to take them all to heart. Can weekend. I make a suggestion? I'm yes. going to send you, I have a, a, a CD of the history of governments that have fallen. I think you'd find that to be uplifting. <laughs> I'll send it to you this weekend. I want it back, obviously, but I'll, okay. I'll send it to you. 
You know, something about the czar and the, the Bolsheviks. No, and, maybe. <laughs> Just wait. It'll be in your inbox. A little Madame Defarge. Okay. Knitting madly. Okay. Okay. We are done. We are done. We yes, are really done. Yes, thank you done. very much for tuning in today. We did get all your complaints earlier today. No, okay. stop with that. Come on. <laughs> really. Go ahead. Tune in, tune in Monday for the Washington Post, Bob Costa. Oh, great. Oh, that's going to be great. great. MIT election expert Charles Stewart, the Reverend Iron Monroe, and Emmett Price. Excellent. We're all revved up. And speaking of them, you can catch up on season two of their podcast this weekend. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, your smart speaker. It's really good. You're going to enjoy it. Um, I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aiden Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker, the engineers who keep our remote studios running, our Miles Smith. And Dave Goldstein, anything you'd like to add before we do Yes, I never say, even though I think we have a fairly good show here, I mm-hmm. never say X day is must uh, listen radio. Monday, mm-hmm. the day before the election, if you're into Marjorie, is going to be must listen radio. I cannot imagine what you're going to be like the day before the voting stops. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm just going to be, as I always am, Jim, cool, calm. <laughs> Nothing rattles me. It's uh, beautiful. A, a vision of collection and, and restraint and all those yeah. kinds of things. Have a good weekend, Jim. Well, you too, Marjorie. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> I am Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie. And thanks again for Take tuning care. in. See Please tune in on Monday and have a reasonably wonderful weekend. Do the best you can. That's all Bye. I can say. Bye. <laughs>